Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of DPS. I am one of your hosts, as always, Adam Proctor, and my other host is joining me from a uh, a bunker uh, somewhere in the great north. Ben Burgess, <laughs> where the fuck are you anyway, by the way? Uh, I am in Michigan. Jennifer and I drove up uh, yesterday. It took about 13 hours. Uh, it was a, exactly as much fun as you'd think that would be since uh, we <laughs> stopped twice the whole time so both cases we just did the like 10 minute stop at the gas station take the slip dog on the full body like human prophylactic before you go more into or the, less uh, more or yeah. less there was that that's what it felt like and then like especially you know you're stopping in kentucky somewhere and like you're the only person in the gas station wearing a mask you're like uh i feel weird right now yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. but, kentucky's uh, a wild city on the one hand you know you've got uh, little hotbeds of like radical militancy and Places like Louisville, and I mean that like in in a relative uh, sense. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's it's not the bad. Kentucky's got an interesting history, man. There were some, um, you know, anti-slave revolts and, and and stances that were taken in Kentucky uh, leading up to the Civil War. You know, it's one of those border states, man. It was uh, it's hot and and, and ripe for radicalization in some ways. But uh, no, I don't envy you for that drive, man. That's that's yeah. that's brutal. No, that's brutal. absolutely. It's 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 totally ridiculous because. Like we're doing this sort of usual, my wife and I usually like come up here and spend some time with uh, my parents over the summer and uh, and usually like my brother comes for a while too and stuff and obviously he can't do that. And in fact, like my parents like kind of are like leaving for two weeks, you know, to like make sure none of us have the plague, you know, and then coming back, you know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's you know, nuts. it's like whatever, like I still like Michigan in the suburbs, in the backyard, drink a Bell's Oberon, but, but yeah, this is, this is definitely not a, uh, not a standard year. You got that uh, freshy, fresh Bell's up there in, in Michigan, don't you? People don't know Bell's, fantastic craft brewery uh, based in Michigan. One of the originals, one of the OGs, mm-hmm. are they still, are they still holding strong? Are they still owned by the original, the original folks? Have they sold out to Anheuser or uh, one of the other? <laughs> I, I, I believe I believe they're still owned by the original folks. Last last summer, them. yeah, I was in like last time I went to the brewery was last summer, and and as far as I can tell, it's it's still under the original management. And yeah, there's the and yeah Oberon. It's like a really nice like uh, since uh, you do see it a little bit more elsewhere in the country now, but like it's always been something that like. You know, when I go back to Michigan over the summer, you know, since it's like a seasonal beer and it's from there and everything, you know, uh, like I always get a kick out of that. But um, I used to really struggle to get Oberon in the summer. People would buy it up. Uh, too hearted is available year round. Too hotted, as they call it in, in Boston. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's one of my one of my favorite bells. Anyway, uh, you're making me no. wax poetical about craft beer here. Uh, yeah, I've been drinking yeah. swill since I've been in quarantine. It's harder to get out, you know, and get the good shit. So. Yeah, well, at least at, at least in Atlanta we've got four twenty, so uh, Sweetwater, right? So I've been uh, drinking that pretty consistently. There's also actually while we're while we're on the subject, Michigan also has Founders, which is excellent. Yeah, um, Founders, top notch. Yep. Um, pour, one of my favorite porters for sure. Um, I'm in Richmond. We've got some craft breweries. You know, Stone came out here from California for you IPA drinkers. One of the best just IPA producers around, man. Just can't beat it. Um, you know what else they produce here in Richmond? What's that? <laughs> Lots of fucking racism. Yeah. Former 
former capital of the Confederacy, my friend. It's a mixed bag. So Richmond itself is a hotbed of of, of good solid liberals. You know, yeah. uh, it's been gentrified. So like the 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 potentialities there for like some urban radicalism is has been quite like you know dulled. I would say over the past decade or so. But but you know, right outside the city, you know, you saw not only the highest concentrations of Tea Party chapters, yeah. whatever the fuck you want to call them, in uh, 2012. But that also correlated with that area also having the highest concentration per capita of uh, of Klan organizations in the 1960s. So like a direct lineage from the Klan to the Tea Party uh, out there. It's a mixed bag. But what you what everybody now knows in the in the national media is that Richmond is just riddled with these statues. Of traitors, yeah, right. Traitors to the to the to the you know you know they just make they just they just put up the statues. Uh, all you got to do is rise up against your own country in favor of enslaving <laughs> other humans, and and they'll you get a, you get a statue. What yeah, I'm, I'm like like don't get me wrong. I, I haven't. I think the last time that I actually like intentionally watched Bill Maher's show was like five years ago, but. um like and, and he has he's he's a terrible comedian. Like his delivery is awful. But like, but he did used to have some pretty good lines. Which, by the way, the reason for that is that David Feldman was writing for him. And you know, like so, I I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that like at least half of the good lines were Feldman. But in any case, uh, the non-reactionary like, uh, ones, anyway, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a good socialist, but. Uh, but like one of the one of the old good Bill Maher lines I was liked was something where he was like making fun of that very thing, and he was like, "If my, you know, if my ancestors had like gone to war for their right to rape thirteen year olds or something, I wouldn't be like reenacting it and reminding people of it all the time." It's fucking weird, man. You think Ren fairs are weird? Anybody out there <laughs> been to one of those things? Uh, yeah, go to a reenactment, a civil war reenactment. So anyway, it's been announced by uh, our dear governor. Uh, Ralph Northam, who, uh, you know, pissed off a lot of people in every direction uh, in, over the past year, that he will be taking down the statue, the infamous statue of Robert E. Lee, the former uh, commander of the Confederate Army, who be has been deified. By, oh, yeah. It'll be replaced by a statue of Ralph Northam in blackface. <laughs> Bazinga. Yeah, that, that was one of the controversies. Of course, the other controversy was that he he made this ridiculously insane like culture war lib move of trying to take away people's assault rifles um, mm. in, in the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, just which, was going to do is, nothing other than disempower like progressives and other Democrats in in state and and lo- sorry in local and city councils, which is exactly what it did. It, it caused the revanchist uprising in in some of the local elections. Over the past uh, couple of months, which have seen, you know, a black uh, historic kind of black leaders who have been in, in places of power. My own my own hometown. That was the case, actually. Uh, one of the the black leaders in that city council who had sat there for decades was, a you know, uh, in, a, in a sort of uh, not, you know, not always so great sort of race, racial brokerage kind of role, but better than nothing for sure. He, he really protected and looked out for the interests of of the historically impoverished uh, black community there, and and he was voted out in large part because of this massive uh, upswell up upwelling and in, in turnout uh, due to the reaction against this stupid fucking like policy, right? And I'm saying, I mean, look, like I'm I'm a, like gun control. We can have a talk about that, but like you know, yeah. you're gonna fire up their base that way, and for what? Like to what end? Right? What? For well, what it's it's, it's so ridiculous too, like. I mean, look, I, I, you know, whatever you think about, uh, like, 
what gun laws it would be better if we had just as a matter of like strategies and priorities. Like the United States has been massively unsuccessful in disarming like Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, where you can just like kick in the door without, you know, without a warrant trying to disarm all of the gun fanatics in Virginia like just just seems like such a bizarre losing proposition and it's so weird that all these centrist democrats think that like that's totally achievable you could do that right you could like take away like you know like you could like wade into the most like hot butted sensitive you know like cultural preserve of like you know of of those people and and, and like get them to bend an edu on that but like now Canadian healthcare, like that's like totally out of balance. Right. Like we can't even yeah. hope for that. Right. Now let's, let's contextualize this. And I, you know, ap- apologies to you, Ben and, and listeners who aren't in the enthralled in Virginia state politics. I'm not either, but I do happen to know a little bit about it since I live here. Uh, but you know, let's contextualize this move. Cause this is really like um, illustrative of what we're seeing across the country with these mainstream centrist Democrat types. Right. So the, co- the context of this move was that he, he, I don't say he campaigned on uh, ending the right to work, uh, uh, right to work status of Virginia as a state, but he 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 threw it around here and there, and he got some support on that basis. And of course, after being elected, you know, with some power in the state house in the congressional uh, level, um, he reneged on that. Right. So he reneged on on you know uh, repealing right to work in the state, something that stood since I believe 47, 1947. Virginia was one of the first states, I believe, either forty seven or forty eight. And um, and instead, we get this kind of mealy-mouthed, uh, unenforceable gun reform. So needless to say, this is contextualizing what we're talking about now, which is this statue removal. So on the one hand, this is a, this is a this is a contradictory thing, right? And it's kind of like a really perfect way for us to warm up for the yeah. Cedric Johnson interview that's 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 yeah. forthcoming. Because right, like on the one hand, like fuck General Robert E. Lee and newsflash, folks. I don't know if I should say this on the air. I am the, uh, at least according to my family <laughs> records, the uh, the nephew five times removed Ugh. of General <laughs> James Yule Brown Stewart, otherwise known as Jeb Stewart, who was the Ugh. highest ranking general killed on either side uh, during actual combat in uh, in the Civil War. And uh, I am his Ken. We somehow, some, you know, my great, great grandfather somewhere along the line must have drank away the family fortune because it didn't didn't trickle down uh, to my little uh, branch of that tr- family tree. But uh, as a descendant of one of the uh, most, you know, mythologized generals of that war, I say, fuck them, tear all, yeah. tear down all the statues. Of course. Right. And, and I hope that there's a hell that they can look up from and see us doing it. Um, of course, we know that it has nothing to do with the actual generals, the actual civil war, the heritage, the, the quote history itself. It has everything to do with, Jim Crow in various rounds of these kind of culture warrior white supremacist blocks, uh, you know, these power yeah, blocks. Most, most, most of those statues went up in like the 1920s. Yeah, 20s, um, 60s. Schools 60s, were named yeah. in the 60s. I went to Robert E. Lee High School, I should add, which was recently yeah. changed uh, two years ago. Uh, this particular yeah, they, statue went up in 1890-something where, uh, of course, we saw the door, the final door closing on any efforts of, of reconstruction. Right, so there was another wave there to try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 post-reconstruction retrenchment of racial hierarchy. Yeah, uh, especially in the South, uh, the uh, the the twenties, which was like the 
the boom period of of the revitalized modern KKK. You mean the birth uh, of a nation? That was when that that's when the the nation was born, right? Was, that's that, right. That's that right. Happened? That's right. That's right. And uh, and yeah, that obviously the civil rights era, you know, the sixties, right? So it's always is never like about like memorializing the thing itself. Uh, you know, it was, it was always about the racial politics of the moment when the the statues went up, and also like I don't know. I mean, it's weird, right? Like because like somehow. Like this, this idea that people have that like we need the statues to, um, you know, that like this is like this uh, assault on historical memory or something like, like just on a like just just on a totally apolitical level. It's just such weird reasoning. Like somehow we managed to remember like that the thirteen colonies were originally attached to Great Britain without like King George statues up and around to remind us. Yeah, like you yeah. know, like 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 everybody knows what happened in World War II, even without any statues of Hitler or Goebbels. Right. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's, so it's, yeah, it's, obviously the the sooner they go go down, you know, uh, the better. And it's actually been really gratifying to see this kind of like uh, to see how quickly you know they've been going down lately. Right. It's definitely one of the most satisfying things about this moment. This line is not original to me. I'm stealing it from somebody on Twitter, but it made me laugh. So I'll share it. Right. That uh, to to slightly tweak Lenin, uh, there are uh, there are decades uh, where you fuck around and weeks where you find out. Uh, <laughs> so, I've been uh, extremely I, offline lately, so I missed that one, but I love it. So, but 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 there's I got yeah. man, I'm all tingling now, th- Ben. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. There it is. Woo, God, Woo, that was gratifying. Yeah. I knew it was coming. Yeah. But 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 no, I mean, but, so, but at the but. at the same time, at the same time, yeah, yeah, at the same time. Uh, moreover, perhaps we might say, but right, like this, this, you know, this is all gravy, right? Fuck them, yeah. tear them all down. You know, as we saw our comrades in the UK, uh, tore down a slave, uh, a statue of slave trader Edward Colston, who was apparently around, uh, just, just killing and trading all kinds of human beings in the 18th century, apparently in the uh, transatlantic slave trade, I suppose. Which, and, um, and, and by the way, by the way, gotta mention like the, to my mind, the funniest thing that's happened in statues in the last week, which is when the uh, uh, the Louis the Sixteenth statue in uh, in Louisville uh, was was vandalized, and you had speaking of Twitter, uh, not one but two pretenders to the non-existent French throne. I have no idea if either of them can legitimately trace their family tree to Louis Sixteenth or not. Um, or, or whether this is just like some bullshit, you know, like family thing. Oh, you know, your great, great, great grandfather was Louis the Sixteenth, you know. Uh, but there are two of these these French guys who are like tweeting their outrage about it, and they eat, which you know, whatever. As we continue to descend into chaos, I, I'm sure by the end of 2020, you know, like we'll have like rival royalist armies marching on Paris because that would just fit so well with what's going on right now. But <laughs> like be the best part about it is that one of these two um, pretenders to the non-existent French throne is like, I guess, a woke monarchist. Cause like in his tweet, he was like, Oh, you know, uh, Louis XVI abolished torture. So, you know, he, he'd totally be on the side of the protesters right now. It's like, so uh, you know about Haiti, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard, I've heard that some shit went down in Haiti uh, owned by the French. Um, yeah, been made to pay reparations for uh, fighting for their own freedom. By the way, yeah, which 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 they're still affairs. which which essentially um, right. I mean, like they 
yeah, the the uh, reparation payments they they were required to uh, to to pay to France uh, kicked off a, a cycle of 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 you know national debt peonage that's still ongoing, right? You yeah, know, isn't to, that to just so French though to still try to take credit for some shit on the on the back of like this um, unbelievable, unspeakable foundational travesty? You know, so so that's that that's a hilarity. Of course, you know, our UK comrades threw uh threw old Captain Colston into the sea of Bristol. That was amazing. Uh, so in, in Richmond, in my dear city, uh, protesters tore down a statue of Williams Carter Wickham, who was apparently a Confederate general from this, from this, the city. I don't know. Fuck knows who he is. You know, if you, if you owned enough human beings and, and you spoke just with the right accent, you know, they gave you the fucking bars on your chest, I guess, if you were in the Confederacy, they tore down that statue the other night and then in the report, uh, and this was printed in, in the newspaper. Somebody apparently whipped it out and pissed on it. Uh, that was awesome. <laughs> pretty great, you know, insult to injury, tore down old Williams Wickham from the 1890s. Mm. And then somebody literally just whipped it out and peed all over him. Um, that sounds great to me. I mean, I, look, I'm with this. I'm down. I'm of with course, this movement. I, let's piss on all the Confederate generals. But, uh, you know, before you before you before you get to the butt. Um, I, th- I, th- I think we should seriously consider making let's piss on all the Confederate generals the name of this episode. Yeah, piss on all the Confederate generals. I'm down. Let's do that. Uh, but we also have to think very seriously uh, in a nuanced way about who this is going to empower, politically speaking, because this right here is 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 potentially going to hand Governor Ralph Northam and a bunch of other centrist a-hole Democrats who have not had the um, the gall or the wherewithal or, you know, any, anything that measure uh, to carry out very basic, proud Democratic Party policies when they had the chance. Right. Which is, of course, like I said, um, repealing yeah. the, 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 the most yeah. inhumane elements of Taft-Hartley being um, these right to work laws. And so here they have a culture war that's handed to them on a silver platter, which is just in many, many respects. Um, however, we have to be concerned, um, obviously, about who this is going to empower. Yeah. And another way of talking about this would be a good segue into something that you've looked into and, and have a lot to say about is the way in which the Minneapolis City Council is getting a lot of uh, radical street cred for their intention to, quote, defund and dismantle the city's police department following this police killing of George Floyd. So, um, you know, maybe comment yeah. on that and tell us, kind of explain to us really quickly what, what's going down in Minneapolis. Are they actually going to dismantle the police? Are we going to see the yeah. police being uh, abolished? Uh, well, well, short answer, I doubt it. But let's uh, – but just to just to cycle back a little bit, right? Like, you know, I, th- I think it's important to make the distinction. Obviously, nobody should – like – you know, obviously there shouldn't be statues of these like 19th century supervillains. It's a just and necessary thing. They'd be ripped down. Nobody who's descended from, from people who are owned by these assholes should ever have to, you know, look up at, you know, one of those statues. But it's also like, it's so empty by itself. It's like, you know, like one of the symptoms of the Russian revolution happening, you know, the, uh, the Romanovs finally being overthrown, was that after, was that the this like archaic like old imperial Russian calendar could finally be replaced by the standard global one, and that's like a sign of progress. But like, if Tsar Nicholas had just said, "Hey guys, good news, we're going to replace the calendar," that <laughs> would have been literally meaningless by itself, right? I mean, right. like that—that's yeah. you know, like 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 yeah, it's it's, yeah, the, yeah. it's I it's like the that cheap, analogy, yeah. 
It's, it's, the, it's cheapest. the cheapest way to pretend that you're doing something like that. Like, oh, we're we're, we're going to have the same unjust, uh, you know, we're we're going to have the same unjust structures, you know, with all the, you know, that that uh, that that keep most, you know, black people in, in terrible economic conditions, etc. But like, <laughs> you know, we're not going to have some of the symbols of those structures. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah. If and only I, Tsar Nicholas had been uh, a little bit more sophisticated uh, and cynical, uh, you know, and, and less less assured of his the, the, his uh, chose the chosenness of his regime, uh, yeah, maybe nineteen seventeen yeah, never would have happened. You know, yeah. <laughs> he should have like, he should have uh, hired uh, Nancy Pelosi as a consultant. I believe she was in her teens at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, yeah, her and her and yeah. all the rest of the ghouls the, that that uh, seem to never age or die, uh, feeding off the blood <laughs> of of millennials and Gen Zers. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and, and whatever she's whatever she's keeping that ice cream freezer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, bone no question. Marrow. Right? Millennial <laughs> yeah. bone marrow. Yeah, no, I I also it's my favorite you know, flavor. <laughs> you know, the, dead-eyed as hell. Oh God, that woman. I mean, and I, mean, all I, mean I don't know. Yeah, plus I mean, like she. I mean, I remember when they first made her speaker. Like my entirely apolitical and possibly problematic response was, Jesus Christ! I've never seen somebody who was as fucked up by Botox. I mean, she just looks like the Joker. Uh, <laughs> permanent smile, but oh, uh, uh, she's worth like a you know, she isn't. At one time, she was worth about a hundred million, a cool a cool hundred mil. I think her fortunes have since declined. She made some bad bets on something, but she's now like a. Worth a mere like seventy mil, I believe. You know, you're that rich. You just get these fantasies in your mind, like that you're not going to die. And as a correlator to that, you don't want to age either, right? Like you can do whatever the fuck you want with that amount of money. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the same, and you know, and so yeah. Like if you think about the Minneapolis thing, uh, and and there's like a a, a bigger debate. You know, this this taps into because a lot of people on on the left. Um, you know, the, the radical left think that anything that's short of the abolition of, of the police is, is just, um, you know, is just, is just inadequate or, you know, reformist or, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and so really the, the really radical position that everybody should take is, is abolish the police and, and before getting into both to why, I think that that's that's not a well thought out position, and related to that, why I think getting excited about the Minneapolis thing is at best severely premature. Um, I think it's I think it's important to try to like grapple with the best possible version of this kind of thinking, right? That like there are because look, there are cases in which something like that might make sense, right? So like like um, so for example, if if you talk. Uh, about you know abolishing ice, right? You know that's 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 an example. You know I I know we have some disagreements about this stuff. I think we're on the same page about that part of it, right? That like, uh, but but it it seems like okay, you could actually take that super literally, right? That like we could literally just get rid of that particular agency, full stop, end of story, and, and we'd be fine. Right. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, like, the, the easiest way to put that is like because they didn't used to fucking exist like not yeah, very yeah, long ago. They didn't used to exist. So let's just like we don't have to radically reform, you know, our, our federal 
criminal, quote, criminal justice system. We just sort of wind the clock back prior to that sort of reorganization of, of federal authorities that happened, you know, in the wake of 9-11. It would be very, very simple to, to happen. I think, you know, the reason why I think we're in agreement about like why abolish ICE has so much teeth as a specific demand, as a specific assessment of like the balance of like repressive force, you know, in the, at the federal level in the U S government is because there's like, there's right. There's a historical specificity there, right? There's like a, a specific thing that we're tackling. It's not just abolish police. It's not just abolish the police department. And so in that respect, like, I'm curious what your take is on that. I know it's my, you said, you mentioned you just recorded a video for zero, one of the zero book series. Uh, about this. So I know you have a lot to say, but yeah, to my yeah. mind, like, you know, it's, they're not so much abolishing police as they're just saying like, okay, in this city, this city of Minneapolis, in this moment, there is this department with these people in it organized in this way with these like specific, like with this rap sheet of like, um, of like cronyism and corruption. And like, so dealing with, dealing with the specificities of that issue and then trying to redress that to me, Sounds like a, a different question than just like, let's abolish police. Dot. dot yeah, dot. yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So, uh, so just just for for listeners who who might not have been tracking this yet, um, the so what what's happened so far um, is that nine members of the Minneapolis City Council, which would theoretically be a veto-proof majority, have expressed their commitment for dismantling the Minneapolis police department and moving to a new public safety system, whatever the hell that means. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that is really all the detail that's in the news stories about this so far. And, and just to, and just to, to put a slightly finer point on the, on, on the, the ice comparison, like part of the reason you can talk, I mean, yes, besides the fact that, um, that, you know, ice, is like half the age I am, right? You know, like that. Uh, so this, you know, we we like it not existed isn't you know isn't that radical a thought? And even more generally, like even without like any great change necessarily. I mean, obviously, I do think there should be a great change to the immigration system. But with even without any great change to the immigration system, um, you know, you, you could still. You know, you could have a border patrol, whatever, but like you don't really need a agency that's specifically tasked with um, with going around like ferreting out and rounding up, you know, peaceful and other law otherwise law abiding people for committing what. Let's remember, even now, I mean, it's it's a you know, it's a misdemeanor. It's it's like uh, like crossing the border without permission like as an actual legal category, right? For the vast majority of American history, it was just a civil infraction anyway. It would, you know, like it wasn't even typically punished in the courts. You know, they would just sort of Mm -hmm. dump you off on the other side of the border. And even now that it is, like the maximum penalty, I believe, for like crossing the border illegally is similar to the maximum penalty for burning trash in your backyard, right? Like Mm -hmm. this, this is not a, you know, like, so like, Having like the idea that we need a specific agency tasked with like uh, going around to people's homes and workplaces and churches and rounding them up like the fucking Gestapo uh, because they like violated this this relatively trivial law years in the past. Right. Like that's something we can do without. So abolish ICE. When you say that, you can just say it literally like we literally just mean like that can just go away now. Right. And that will be fine. Whereas when you say abolish the police, 
that's a little bit more confusing uh, because everybody, right? Like everybody thinks that there should be some sort of mechanism for enforcing at least some laws, right? That like, like nobody, um, nobody from like some democratic party politician in the Minneapolis city council, who's certainly not going to think that right. You know, down to like, I don't know. You're like crust punk relic who hangs out at the anarchist bookstore and, you know, downtown Minneapolis and everybody in between. I think even that, even that guy, I think if you asked him enough follow-up questions would, would, would say, yeah, there should be some kind of something or other. There should be some sort of entity that you can call in, you know, to enforce laws about rape and murder and domestic violence and, you know, et cetera, right? Like that, like there are at least some laws that just about everybody wants to enforce in some manner or another, uh, presumably, I hope not just mob justice, cause that would be worse. Um, and, and, and by the way, not just worse in the sense that like, you know, I'm a big squish about stuff like, you know, the rights of defendants, uh, mm-hmm. but also worse, even in terms of the racial dynamics, um, that the history of, like non-professional self-organized, you know, patrols and stuff in the United States, the racial history of those has been not great. Not right? great. And, and, and shout out to uh Christian Prater, a listener of the show and um, solid dude. We shouted him out on a B side, I believe last week. So this is, he's, he's, he's getting a, a, a double dose here week after week of shout outs, but he brought it up to me actually in a DM is a great point. I hadn't really thought about it in, in this context, but like, it's not just like the racial like mob quote justice that like was um you know meted out uh, at various intervals in our sad pathetic and twisted history in this country but it was also the quote justice meted out uh, by paid thugs of of capital right i mean so prior to the police you had the pinkertons you know not yeah. prior i mean that's, there's not a direct lineage uh, you yeah, know yeah. I, I, uh, but you know there were there were various state entities and and maybe. pinkertons right and it was hard to tell who had the authority and, and, and where the sort of um, hierarchies were in that, in that respect. And so, you know, Not to mention, if you go back to the early 20th century, like even aside from the Pinkertons and, you know, I mean, obviously there were police at this point. Right. But like, yeah. um, but you also just have cases of stuff like, like university students just being recruited in mass to like, go like help break up a strike. Yeah, just, uh, they just get a baton and a bat, just like maybe like a, a fifth of liquor or something, and sent down to the, <laughs> yeah, to, the yeah. to the picket lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, so, there's no so, doubt about that. Yeah, right. So like, there's there's no um, like actually having you know you want you know so so my baseline at least, and maybe some people disagree with this. Although part a big part of what I'm getting at here is that one of the reasons I want us to be specific about our, about our demands and concrete. Is so if it turns out we do have disagreements, we can find out exactly where those disagreements are and have an honest argument about them. So right, yeah. part of my baseline is that I think that whatever sort of entity exists for enforcing laws should be one that one uh, is at least somewhat professionalized, both because like I don't want to see, you know, like some uh, neighborhood watch jackass trying to do CSI stuff, right? You know, and and to uh, because, but he's watched all 50 seasons, Ben. He, he's got this. <laughs> I trust right. him. You know, and, and two, uh, I, I'd like, you know, I'd, I'd like there to be the kind of 
public control and accountability to some sort of democratic institutions, right? Yeah. Uh, bourgeois democratic ones until we have more robustly democratic ones in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, that like that, those, these seem like in order to, you know, in order to guarantee things like the rights of criminal defendants, right? Like this is mm-hmm. all important to me. Uh, I think it's important to most people in this discussion. Uh, but again, the vagueness that about a lot of these slogans obscures that. So then when you say, okay, so if we all agree that there should be some sort of entity or other that enforces laws, then, and maybe even we all agree that it shouldn't just be like self-organized posses, you know, going down to take, you know, take yeah, care uh, of business, right? The, that, the, like, Ante- the Antifa super soldiers shouldn't yeah, be, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, banding, like, banding together to uh, meet out yeah. uh, community justice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. So there's that. I mean, so let's, like, we've got like, 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 so we don't want that. Right. But like, right. just, just to, just to like barrel ahead here. Like I, I just like also like, okay. So, so given that that's a baseline, right. We, we want there to be some sort of entity, Presumably, if everybody in this discussion is some kind of leftist, right, we all want it to be some sort of public entity, right? We don't want the last thing we want is like private policing, right? So we mm. want so so we want whatever is in charge of of law enforcement um to be some sort of publicly owned entity or other, right? And then at that point, really the question is, and you know, I've, I talked before and 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 you know, I'm and when we get to the interview with Cedric Johnson, right, you know, we talk about this a little bit there about, you know, the way that like back in 2017, when uh, DSA was adopting all of these abolish resolutions, right, something that I started to notice a lot uh, was that people would use this kind of cheat code uh, as we know them, right, you know, that, that we, we shouldn't mm-hmm. have, you know, like, I don't think police should exist as we know them. I don't think prisons should exist as we know them. Which of course doesn't mean anything. It's just a way of saying like what that what those two things amount to. This shouldn't exist as we know it mm-hmm. is just an elaborate way of saying the status quo is bad. We should have something different. Okay. Well, I mean, right. presumably we all start out agreeing with that, right? right? Like so, the question is, what are the specific ways we want it to be different, right? Like mm-hmm. if there's some sort of entity, and the Minneapolis thing is a perfect illustration of this, uh, because. They say they want, you know, these politicians and the city council, right, say they want to dismantle the police and have a completely different post-60 system. That doesn't mean anything. That that could literally mean almost anything, right? So just yeah. to start off the top, yeah. right, like one, right, just to be cynical about this, one thing it could mean is just do the equivalent of um, – the equivalent of knocking down the statues without changing any of the underlying power structures – and mm-hmm. just like get a bunch of new, like repaint the cars and get a new sign, right? Yeah. And say this is no oh, longer. Oh shit! It's Pride Month. We could uh, we could paint them like rainbow colors, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Uh, <laughs> Wells Fargo Pride Month. Uh, yeah. So like you brings could... you abolishing the police. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They could make like a Netflix uh, docu series about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Maybe That's as a it. sequel to like Hollywood. You know, it'd be really great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we've got a barrel ahead here. I mean, we, we, yeah, one, yeah. So, one statistic, one statistic I saw, and maybe you can incorporate what you've got going here because we've got to get to the Cedric interview. We're we're uh, we're, yeah, we're burning yeah. up the we're burning up the clock here. Um, but that's to say, like, 
this is from a friend of the show, recent guest, and also a, a, a key figure there, Jacobin, Connor Kilpatrick mentioned on social media that uh, somebody crunched the numbers. Don't quote me on these exact figures, but they're very, very much in line with the ballpark. I promise you that. If they were to dismantle the LAPD and, and reallocate that money to other social aims, that would leave approximately $81 per citizen of that county, <laughs> right? Uh, because because we have to remember, uh, you know, that we had Adana Usmani on the show. Uh, I've had him on now a couple of times. And uh, his really great article on um, sort of uncovering the roots of mass incarceration reveals that we went for mass incarceration and this kind of hyper form of ridiculous and violent policing precisely because it was so much cheaper than giving people social democracy in the 1970s, yeah, yeah. 80s, 90s and forward. And so because it's so much cheaper. Right. Like you can't just trade in like all of the like guns, ammo, armor and APCs, you know, for like healthcare, uh, you know, jobs, uh, education. Right. Like we need much more fundamental transformations in the, yeah, in, in the yeah. kind we, of we, class we, we, structure we, 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 of this society. And a lot of people will then say, well, yes, we know that, Adam, but this is just like a step. This is a necessary sort of like step one. And we're not going to be able to get to the root of this debate um today yeah, yeah. Uh, so so just 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 real just real quickly right so so yes absolutely right like there's no there's no budget neutral way to 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 reverse the pivot to militarize policing you know instead of social democracy right we, we we do in fact need to do you know class struggle here um but but like also and and i think this is just a really important thing to underline because right now the mini out like the left is cheering itself hoarse for this so far so vague that it's meaningless decision by the Minneapolis City Council, and I think this really reveals why abolish police sounds super radical, mm. but it's actually not. What it is is it's super vague, right? So you're not saying quite what you want, so mm-hmm. it's not clear what counts as a victory. So. If they just change the name of the Minneapolis Police Department to the Minneapolis Public Safety Squad, right? Like, presumably, that wouldn't be good enough. If they also uh, completely replaced the staff, you know, like, they, they hired all new people for it. But, like, otherwise, it was indistinguishable for a police department. That'd be a little bit better, right? You'd definitely get rid of some people who are, on, you know, are, are terrible people, right? But yeah. if you think that there is a deeper problem here than just personnel— uh, that's that's clearly not going to get it done. Uh, so this is why I actually think that it's 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 a more transformational thing to talk about things like defunding, demilitarizing, um, democratizing, right? The the police, uh, because that way we actually have clear goalposts, right? There's going to be some kind of entity. Nobody seriously disagrees with that about that. The whole question is how would that entity differ from the one that exists right now? And yeah. if you're just talking and if you're throwing around this abolition language, you haven't come close to answering those. You haven't even really gestured at what a good answer to those questions would be like. Whereas if you say, yeah, uh, what we want is an entity, call it whatever the fuck you want. I don't care about that. Right. But like, you know, what we want is an entity that doesn't soak up you know, as much of the city, city budget. I mean, obviously we also need bigger city budgets, right? That's true. Right. Like, yeah. but, but like it doesn't soak up as much of the city budget. That's the defund part. Uh, there's more direct community control over it, particularly hiring and firing. That's the democratized part. And it's not 
like riding around on tanks, right? That's the demilitarized <laughs> part, right? Like yeah. those should presumably be the benchmarks. And if you have, you know, some future, assuming this even happens, which, you know, my, uh, as they say, lived experience with the Democratic Party uh, leads me to think it's probably not going to happen. But even if it does happen, right, if we get a Minneapolis public safety squad that is uh, funded to the tune of about what the Minneapolis Police Department was and isn't really under any more meaningful Democratic control than the old police department was, that's still riding around in fucking tanks, then, like, that strikes me as pretty empty. And if you agree that that's pretty empty, then maybe it's worth thinking about taking a step back for this kind of vapid sloganeering, you know, that like, Oh, I want to abolish this, that, or the other thing and say, no, no, no. like specifically, right. Tell me exactly the changes you want. Then we can have an argument about whether they're good changes and how we can bring them about if they're good changes and what would count. Right. Like those are all discussions worth having right now. The discussion that far too much of the radical left is having is, hey, I've got a really radical sounding slogan. Will you say it with me? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and the, and the problem is, let's be real about this. Uh, you know, shout out to the protesters. Credit where credit is due. Um, they're definitely angry about a lot of things. And we're going to talk about what those things might be here in just a moment with Cedric. Um, but, you know, people can't stay out on the street forever. You know, Occupy couldn't last forever and they had fucking, I said they, we, we had yeah. fucking tents. Yeah. Okay. You know, tents and, and community ass- or assemblies, right. To determine our, the way we were going to organize and operate, right. They don't tents. have so much as that. Right. And, yeah. and so, you know, tents, to say we're going to assemblies and no plague, no plague. Exactly. Pr- crucially no plague because it is spreading, unfortunately, due to these protests. We know that now. Um, but, um, but, but, but that's to say that like, you know, this kind of chest thumping bravado that you see in these moments. And I've been a part of this and I've been, I've fallen prey to this, uh, where it's like, Oh, we're going to stay out in the streets as long as it takes. It's like, no, you're not. No, you're fucking not. I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry, but you're not. We need to transcend the kind of uh, gelatinous amorphousness of, of the kind of street orientation of this protest and build institutions, build parties, build long lasting formations that can hold these, uh, these policies to account because ultimately neoliberalization is, you know, everything that falls under that sign, right, of neoliberalism. And we need to start using that word more. There, I just said it, right? I fucking said, I tweeted it out earlier today. That's one word that, believe it or not, like we used to use every other fucking sentence that suddenly just completely dropped out of the lexicon over the past couple of months. And if we would only start using it, it would force us to connect policing with the broader economic, social, and political changes that we have seen over the past 30, 40 years, it has everything to do with the class domination of, you know, an increasingly narrow um, sliver of finance capital over over the rest of us. And it would draw our attention to these broader changes that need to happen. And, and, and that's really what Cedric's work does with policing in a really profound way. So I'm really happy to bring you listeners. Uh, Cedric, he's a smart guy for sure. Um, and uh, Ben and I are going to have plenty of time to kind of chop that up with him. This obviously won't be the last you hear out of us about these protests. We're going to have a number of other people. Uh, Paul Prescott is going to come back on DPS. He did a uh, stay at home series episode with Jacobin on YouTube about, uh, it was kind of a biographical sketch of a Philip Randolph. Um, one of the founders of the Pullman Porters union, of course, and uh, went on to be a very 
uh, pivotal player, not only in the African-American uh, community, but also in the labor movement and the socialist movement at large. Of course, leading up to the the uh, the famous uh, legendary March on Washington, which obviously had a lot of labor-centered roots, as many of you know. Uh, we're going to be talking with Paul next week about, about that strategy, about maybe roads that aren't being pursued right now because there's a lot of um, dust-ups both inside of DSA and outside of DSA about uh, how, not only how to assess what's going on right now, but what to do, what to do about it, you know? Um, so lots more to say. Let's go ahead and uh, let's get to that interview. Absolutely. Just before we get to the interview with Cedric Johnson today, I just wanted to remind you guys that DPS is entirely reliant on the, the solidarity of, I was going to say generosity, because it's deeper than generosity. Uh, generosity is a weak liberal notion. Solidarity is grounded in the understanding that we all have collective interests and that we're going beyond charity, that we are indeed contributing to our own betterment and the betterment of, uh, of all, of all of our situations. Uh, so we rely on the solidarity of our listeners and our patrons in particular to keep this show on the road. So if you think that this political project is important, if you'd like to contribute to it, if you would like to increase the volume on our tiny but powerful megaphone that we've got here and blasting this message out into the stratosphere, I encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable. All of our members get access to our weekly B-sides, where Ben and I chop it up sometimes with guests, sometimes alone, and we talk about some of the most pressing issues of the day. Uh, this is where we save our hottest hot takes. We understand that patrons are in it to win it. You guys have the prerequisites to understand the kind of deeper level discussions. Uh, but we also take questions and comments and uh, provocations from patrons uh, so if you want to delve into some of the subject material yourself, uh, if some of the things seem to be a little scary and maybe over your head, become a patron and shoot us some questions. You'll have full access to myself, full access to Ben, ask us questions, um, and we'll do some question and answer sessions as well to try to help further your understanding of, of these politics and these kind of thorny and tangled and nuanced debates. So again, if you enjoy this and you want to support it, keep it going into the future head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today all right on with the interview welcome back everybody joining us now on the program is cedric johnson a man who people uh, who listen to this podcast with any frequency uh, should be very familiar with for sure he is the author of revolutionaries to race leaders in 2007 he also edited an important volume for our conversation today called the neoliberal deluge Hurricane Katrina, late capitalism, and the remaking of New Orleans. There were some chapters there, and uh, you know, some serious discussion about policing and the kind of systemic, you know, elements that that have to do with policing, which is definitely going to be the the topic of our concern today. Uh, Cedric, thanks for coming back on DPS. Hey, thanks for having me. So much to say. Um, as Ben and I kind of joked on, la- I believe it was last week's B side. You know, slow news week, huh? Not not a whole lot to talk about. Uh, right. Quite the contrary. Well, I mean. The topics that have been raised in the wake of George Floyd's police sanctioned murder, um, you know, are, are wide ranging. But unfortunately, they are constrained in the sort of liberal imagination, aren't they? They're constrained to, you know, very kind of um, particularistic complaints about the police, about the way that racism manifests in society. And you are definitely on the forefront of the thinkers uh, these days who are trying to sort of generalize those those complaints 
and and turn those kind of personal troubles into political problems. Just talk to me just very quickly about kind of how, you know, you've been thinking through this over the past couple of weeks. You yourself are writing a book on neoliberalism and policing. So maybe kind of introduce that book by way of uh, thinking through some of the questions that have been raised over the past couple of weeks. Right. So the book um, was imagined as a, a critique of Black Lives Matter, uh, the thought and politics of Black Lives Matter, basically making the argument that we have to go much deeper. And much of what I try to do in the book is connect uh, contemporary policing, not to slave patrols, not to the first few decades of Black migration um, in the beginning of the 20th century uh, to cities, but really to the post-war context, right? And really look at how the remaking of cities coming out of the New Deal and out of the, the transformation of, of real estate markets and uh, suburbanization after World War II really sets up the kind of policing regime that we have now. Because it's not really until, um, not until really late that we begin to see the, the black and brown uh, plurality within prisons that everybody takes as having been having much, much longer historical roots. I mean, even when, when um, Ronald Reagan is sworn in, right, whites are still a slim majority of uh, those kept in jails and prisons across the country. And so um, part of what I do throughout the book, again, is to try to make us think more in terms of, of capitalism and there are other people out there doing it. I don't, I don't lay claim to being the only person who's, who's done this, right? I mean, there, there are a number of folks who do talk about um, the fact that police exist for the sake of defending private property. I think that rule expands and is transformed in, in unique ways after World War II as many Americans become nominal property owners, right? And I think a lot of times when we hear this discussion, you know, discourse around whiteness, essentially that's what they're talking about, right? They're really talking about the ways in which some portions of the American population, as they become uh, salaried, as they're able to obtain a certain um, high level of consumer capacity and, and you know, have a suburban life, that they no longer have the material incentives to push for redistributive politics. And so I think it's very much a material problem. It's a class problem, but it's, it's, it's understood for a lot of academics and even activists as essentially a racial one. Um, so the book is about that. Like, how do we talk about uh, policing and how do we be anti-capitalist at the exact same time? Right. I think that's possible. The last few weeks um, have been an interesting one for me. It's forced me to have to go back to the drawing board in some ways, because the way the, the book started, um, the initial draft, uh, well, it started by basically arguing that the, um, the Black Lives Matter moment was over in 2016. Right. I mean, we kind of see. With, uh, you know, in the summer of 2016, that July 4th weekend when Alton Sterling is killed, Philando Castile is killed within, you know, 24 to 48 hours of each other. Um, we see an explosion of, of protests across the country. But then we also see the mobilization of Blue Lives Matter forces, and in particular, then presidential candidate Donald Trump, who seizes the moment alongside Giuliani and others to, to defend police and he actually does this, uh, he has the support of the, the two black sniper incidents, right? One in Dallas and one in Baton Rouge, where you have black snipers who are armed, you know, both of them veterans who kill police officers, right? And it becomes the perfect moment to kind of put the lid on Black Lives Matter as a phenomenon. So the last few weeks, you know, with George Floyd's death, but also Ahmaud Arbery's uh, killing in Georgia, um, Breonna Taylor, there were three killings in Indianapolis you know, within the same weekend by police. Uh, one of them, you know, more of an accident where a police car 
uh, killed a young a young white woman. Um, we've seen the revitalization or rebirth of Black Lives Matter protests, but I think we've actually seen something much more than that, right? And I think it gets conflated uh, in this moment, right? So there's, on the one hand, there are people who are serious about, um, you know, uh, anti-policing and, you know, anti-mass incarceration who've been doing that work and who are now energized by this moment. And I think that's, that's maybe one of the more important or promising aspects of it. There's also um, the movement of elites, and particularly neoliberals, to seize the moment and control the narrative and, again, show us that there is an anti-racism that is very much compatible with neoliberalization as a, as a project, right? And then I think there's more, right? And this is where it becomes interesting. You all may have noticed, I'm sure you've noticed, that over the last few weeks, even yesterday when... when um, George Floyd was being eulogized by both Ben Crump and uh, Al Sharpton, you know, they took time to, to denounce uh, what violent protests. I and mean, we could talk about what constitutes violence. I think smashing the store window is actually not violence in my mind. Uh, even burning an empty building is not necessarily violence. Uh, and I think some violence can be warranted and justified. Um, but they took care to distinguish peaceful protesters from uh, looters and, and other riotous, you know, behavior. And I think what, what we're seeing here, we're seeing both George Floyd protest with very much a, a, a liberal bent. Some of them, you know, at least the people who have the mic most of the time are only concerned about justice and, you know, court justice and possibly some police reforms that, that take the racism out of policing. But there are some more radical forces who do want to see much more substantial changes within police. The third thing I would say, right, is that, and this is where it gets conflated, what we also witnessed was something I wouldn't call George Floyd uh, protest, but we saw what should probably be called the Donald Trump riots, right? Maybe historically, that's how we should recall it, right? Because with some 40 million people having made, um, you know, uh, unemployment claims, right? We can't look at what happened, right, as simply a replay of 1992 or 1968 or 1967, because the character of it is so much different, right? I mean, there were, you know, it's a mix, right? So there was, there was certainly, um, you know, depending on the city, Black looters and Black, you know, folks who were engaging in, in all sorts of, of, uh, of behavior. But, you know, when you look at the footage of Los Angeles, I mean, and look at the sites, right? So historically, I'm saying this to some friends the other day, usually it's the, it's the Black neighborhood that gets rioted, right, and destroyed. Um, so, uh, but what we saw this time were major commercial districts, right? I mean, Rodeo Drive being looted, you know, uh, the Magnificent Mile here in Chicago, right? Or um, Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica. You know, this is a different phenomenon we're looking at now. It's not the same. And when you look at the looters, I mean, it's it's everybody. It's all sorts of different ages. I mean, maybe it does sort of tilt more towards younger and more working class folks but you know when you look at the at the the uh, video footage i mean you can't you can't stuff it into the same boxes and categories we've been using in the past um the other thing too right i mean we all know people on the left who sees these moments right when there's riding and they they imagine some sort of revolutionary moment um and i don't think it's that either right i think you know when i talk to friends of mine who live on the south side i mean some of them have have faced home invasions over the last Weak others have had arson creep right up until you know right up to their corner, you know where buildings are burning. 
Um, other people have had guns turned on them when they try to protect the store, you know, the store that they need from looters. And so there's a lot going on here. Um, it's tough to analyze it. I've been having a tough time trying to wrestle with it all. But I do think that we have to, at, at a bare minimum, um, one, take into account the expanse of it, right? That we're looking at, you know, 500 plus places that are in some form of, of protest, but then also disentangle, right? I mean, some of this have to, has a lot to do with um, the in- insecurities created by the pandemic and the joblessness that's happened as a result and the hardship. I mean, I think I saw where we could be looking at 54 million people uh, going hungry in the country at this point. We know that the you know, uh, relief lines are already long, right? And they're, and they're long in places where people have never had to use them before. So I just think that there's different things here, you know, and it's not all Black Lives Matter. I mean, it actually may surpass Black Lives Matter in terms of its its political content. Um, but I mean, there's so many things we can say about it. I mean, I don't yeah. know what you guys are thinking about it all, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think the point about, uh, you know, the, the sort of made in passing about violence, you know, is an important one, you know, like just because I think it says something about the ideology behind a lot of these uh condemnations that like that like literally because like the idea that you can commit violence against inanimate objects is just so right. obviously <laughs> absurd right like if I, you know like you know if you shoot beer beer ca- empty beer cans in your backyard you know like for target practice or you're committing violence if you <laughs> if you eat something right you're literally breaking it down to its component particles right like you can't obliterate something much more than that but we wouldn't think it's violence, right? So let's I just committed right. violence on this cup of coffee. So yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, like so, it's like so so. But like then, like that raises the question. So so, why do people, even Al Sharpton, right? Why do they say this? Mm-hmm. And and I think that it says something like really interesting about capitalist ideology that like your property is such an extension of you. You can literally commit violence against it. Like you have nerve endings in your property. Um, but but I did. Related to that, actually, Cedric, I, I, I did want to jump in um, and then, you know, go back to Adam's uh, line of questioning uh, and, and ask you about a couple of specific things that have happened that that might, you know, indicate that this is a little broader than the older version of the Black Lives Matter phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing I've noticed that that I find encouraging, at least, I'd love your take on it, is that uh, I think the some of the demands have gotten a lot better. Uh, that like uh, to the extent that the older version of Black Lives Matter had concrete demands, oftentimes there were just these grotesquely inadequate things like you know more body cams, mm-hmm. uh, and and now I'm seeing more like oh we need to like redirect budget resources away from police towards social workers and stuff like that like that that seems immensely more helpful and more economically grounded. And, and related, uh, we've we've seen some uh, some labor action in support of uh, of the protests. So, uh, in uh, in Minneapolis and New York, I know unionized bus drivers have refused to uh, transport arrested protesters to to prisons. And and I'd, I'd love to hear you speak on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there always was sort of um, different wings within Black Lives Matter, right? So there there were always at least some of the students I've had. I've had students uh, who were active with Black Youth Project 100 and, you know, different local formations here in Chicago. And um, their ideas, I would say, were best for like an amalgam, right? They included the body cameras. They included like the strong anti-racist position, but they also talked about some redistributive um, approaches. And 
I would say, you know, I think that the the fund our futures tendency, the the uh, defund the police, these things are all progressive. I think, but we have to push it even harder, right? So, some of the proposals I've seen um, call for job creation and community programs. Some of this circulated even after uh, the Freddie Gray uh, killing in, in Baltimore. You saw a lot of people, you know, pushing the same thing because I think in Baltimore they had had this sort of odd. Um, but expected um, increase in police funding at the same time they were cutting like community centers throughout the city, right? So some people are simply calling for the reversal of that process. They don't go far enough, right? Because what what they essentially do is, I mean, they some activists and some um, academics as well tend to only focus on the the hot cases, right, and the hot areas, right? And so, for instance, here in Chicago, right, I mean, it's totally true. Black Lives Matter as a slogan makes sense when it comes to policing because, you know, in this city, 70% um, of people who are killed by police in most years, this last decade or so, have been Black, right? And then, as well, uh, about 70% or more, you know, maybe 72, 73% of persons who are stopped by police and let go, right? These are like pretext stops are also black. And in a city where African-Americans are only about, um, you know, one third of the, of the urban population, of the, the actual within the city limits, that's an injustice, right? It's a disproportionality. Um, when we look at it nationally, right, it's a totally different situation, right? I mean, uh, I think Adolf pointed this out in the piece that he did for Nonsite uh, a while back, that um, about half of of uh, police killings still tend to be whites, right? So when we come up with these solutions about redistribution and defunding, right? And if we're gonna turn this money that's being spent on policing towards other kinds of things, should it be coded uh, as for blacks, right? Targeting blacks. So that's, that's one of the things that you hear from people who are based in cities. They're simply saying, let's fund black communities, let's fund black organizations or programs. And I think we have to think broader than that, right? I mean, I think that the the, the potential is here for, um, you know, return to public works. One of the arguments I actually make in, in my, uh, in the book that I'm working on. Um, and if we're going to do that, if we're going to do it, if we're going to win, I think we have to think beyond just simply another kind of patronage, which is what it could end up being in a place like Chicago. It could totally end up being. Um, but I think, you know, again, I think the events of the last week are, are rattling some of the positions that people had. And it's also sharpening the contradictions in a place like like Chicago. Right. So um, what we saw that the last Friday, right, when you had riding within the the uh, the, uh, the loop within the central business district, um, you know, storefront smashed along State Street, along Michigan Avenue. Um, the Diamond District area uh, on Wabash was looted heavily. Uh, after that happened, right, what was Lori Lightfoot's response? She basically shut down the loop and she used the National Guard to create a perimeter. You know, much beyond, it was actually much, the perimeter was actually much bigger north to south than the actual loop. It actually went as far north as Division Street and as far south as 26, which is down around Chinatown, right? And so she did that. And she only, they, they regulated who was able to go in and out of the loop. Only if you lived in the loop, had, a, had an address, could you actually go there. What, that, what happened? The looting spread into the neighborhoods, right? And, and there was no protection. People are calling. I think there were like maybe 30,000 more 
911 calls than on a typical day. Uh, and people were upset, right? Politicians called her out and they said, basically, she, she made the decision that a mayor would make. Let me protect the central business district and the most valuable real estate, but I'll leave everybody else high and dry. And what was phenomenal about it is it wasn't just the South and West sides. I know that those areas have like a kind of mythical place when people think about poverty, just because of the ways in which they've been studied over the, over the years. But the, the looting actually spread across the entire city and even into the suburbs, right? So, um, and the crowds, you know, a lot of it was, was, were black looters, um, but there were other groups as well, right? You know, so, you know, and, and, and again, orientation, of different publics towards it. I mean, some people, you know, it was a great interview they did with a guy who owns this camera store on Wabash that was totally gutted and burned out. And, you know, he's being interviewed by the local media. And he says, you know, I'm not mad at the, at the protesters. He's like, I'm mad at the police. And the interview was cut short. They're like, they're like we're not going to have kind of you know, subversive, uh, you know, owner who's now basically saying, right, the petty bourgeois guys, like, I'm on board as well with the, yeah. the protesters. Um, even though my property was was destroyed. Because um, a lot of these people actually are going to be all right. That's the other thing we're missing, is that you think about the the companies that have been languishing, not companies, but but businesses that have been languishing for the last few months because of the shelter in place. Now they have insurance claims that they right. Some of them are going to bounce back in ways that they wouldn't have. Um, you know, because some of them didn't true. get the relief that was coming from, from the state once it's dried up. So, I think there's, it's a complicated picture, you know. Some uh, of them uh, might have been thinking about, uh, you know, staging an arson themselves just to save their asses. <laughs> there's a precedent for that, right? That's happening in the past. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I've, yeah. I've seen a lot yeah. of, I don't know how it is in Illinois, but I've seen a lot of places where they've, uh, they've like done things like let restaurants reopen, but at only at half capacity, which right. like is, is so cynical because you're saying, oh, you could totally reopen, right. right? So, like, nobody's getting out of play or anything, but at a capacity at which no restaurant would possibly right. ever be economically viable. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that larger context is, is super important, and it's in, I'm glad you raised that because, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about trying to get uh, the kind of more potentially revanchist elements of the petty bourgeoisie on side, it's going to be a lot more difficult when these people have been watching uh, major corporations like Shake Shack mm-hmm. gobble up all of the federal aid over the past three months and, and they've been left with nothing wondering if they're going to be able to open their doors when this thing right. comes back open. And this is not a topic that the socialist left likes to talk a lot about because you know, the petty bourgeoisie are supposed to be reactionary, not necessarily on our side perhaps. Um, but, but like this is a, a, a much larger and important kind of contextual element here. Let's talk about the kind of public perception here. Um, this is something we can't avoid. Uh, you know, the, the, the blackout Tuesday effect on social media was everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have people who I call normies, people who definitely don't listen to uh, Dead Pundit Society, people who don't read Jacobin, people who themselves like might not have even known or cared about Black Lives Matter, you know, back in 2016, um, were, were involved in this. I mean, the, the mass, there's a lot of public support right now is one thing we definitely can say. I saw a poll that came out, I believe, yesterday uh, upon recording this. We're now recording this on Friday. This is going to come out next week, so it might be a little dated. Uh, it's now June 5th, but 54% of Americans – I believe it was Americans when polled um, thought that uh, when protesters burned down that precinct building in Minneapolis, the precinct that uh, that held the cops who were responsible for the murder, 54 percent of Americans believe that that was justified (laughs) protest. Let's 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 break protesters burned down a police precinct and 54 percent of Americans majority 
say that that action was justified. And let's get back to the question of violence, right? Uh, prison, putting someone, to, sending someone to prison is a violent act. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, you know, executing uh, someone is a violent act. So it's not a question of violence. It's a question of, is it just? Is it um, justified? Is it, do, do, does the public approve of the action as like a, an appropriate measure taken in response to something else? Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that seems to be the real question that's at stake. And let's, let's, I mean, I'll get you to kind of talk about the general kind of public sentiment, maybe things that you've heard and things that you're thinking about, particularly in context of your book. Because, you know, unfortunately, you know, you're writing a book, you're going you're gonna to have to not only, you know, talk about what's going on now, but you're going to have to project something into the future that might stand up, might stand the test of time. Yeah. So you're on the spot here. Uh, you know, uh, let's talk more, something more specifically here. In Minneapolis, the city, city council is discussing very seriously, at least in rhetoric. Uh, dismantling the Minneapolis Police Department and replacing it with something else. What does that mean? Um, more interestingly, this came from the, the remarks that are being cited by the press came from a tweet by Benjamin Dixon, who mm. is a, uh, I guess, a colleague of ours, Ben, you could say. Yeah, uh, sure. Like progressive, uh, sometimes radical uh, comment- commentator, uh, active on Twitter. But he, he put out a tweet and said, hey, is anybody going to have the, the guts uh, to go up against their local police departments uh, to which Jeremiah Ellison, who is Keith Ellison's son, uh, Jeremiah sits on the uh, Minneapolis city council. He said, we are going to dismantle the Minneapolis police department. And when we're done, we're not simply going to glue it back together. We're going to dramatically rethink how we approach public safety and emergency response to which Lisa Bender, the president of that city council in Minneapolis echoed that response. She said, yes, we're going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department and replace it with something that's transformative, a new model for public safety. Uh, other, perhaps, I can't remember exactly who it was. It might have been Ellison who went on record uh, calling the Minneapolis Police Department a protection racket, which is something that we're all very familiar with in many instances across the country. Wherein, you know, these police departments will, um, will dole out revenge against those who take political positions against them by delaying response to certain neighborhoods by certainly protecting their officers against internal investigations, by thwarting the will of the uh, elected representatives and, and the broader public. Um, you know, what, what do you make of these more kind of um, specific calls to address like blatant and obvious forms of, of corruption inside these police, inside these police departments? It seems to be a, a, a serious advancement on the much more uh, abstract and relatively toothless calls to abolish the police that we have seen in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think this, again, this is a moment of triumph for uh, Black Lives Matter in the court of public opinion, right? It has also tilted. I mean, that's interesting what you said about the third precinct fire. Um, But I also saw where, I guess, 57% of Americans also now think that Blacks experience excessive force, are more likely to experience excessive force than whites when it comes to policing. Um, that's changed, right? That wasn't the case. You know, I think whites still, like maybe 49% of whites believe, but when you, when you look at the entire population, it's 57%. I think that's significant. But, but I, one of the things that might be missing, right, before we get too excited, right? I mean, I think people are, have a problem with racist policing. They have a problem with corrupt policing. But I think the majority of the American public doesn't necessarily have the same problem with police that many activists do. I think, and I think when we go back to that period I was talking about, the, the 2016 moment when uh, we saw like this, this mobilization of Blue Lives Matter 
uh, counter mobilization against Black Lives Matter in the summer of 2016. One of the interesting sort of factoids from that period was that over the course of demonstrations related to uh, Ferguson, Baltimore, and Chicago, support for policing nationally strengthened, uh, even across racial and ethnic categories. People still supported, uh, they still wanted police as a, as, a, as a part of our society. They also didn't want to see any changes in the, the level of police budgeting uh, at that point. Um, and they were pretty satisfied. Again, they had a problem with the excessive part, but they didn't necessarily share the abolitionist position for sure. Um, or, or, you know, even the idea that somehow we should downsize police departments dramatically. And I think this is an issue that we have to think about on the left, right? So this, I'll, I'll give two quick arguments. One, um, why we need to think about not just simply resizing or retooling or abolishing police, but if anything, abolishing the class relation, right? That should be the focus of anybody on the left, right? That should, because that's essentially what police exist to, to manage, right? They exist for the purpose of dealing with people who um, are struggling to survive and who oftentimes have to resort to criminalized uh, behaviors or acts in order to, to make it. I mean, think about it. Uh, George Floyd apparently had used a, a counterfeit $20 bill. Um, you know, Alton Sterling was selling pirated CDs in front of a uh, gas station, right? Um, Eric Garner was selling loose cigarettes in front of a convenience store, right? So we could go down the line. Other people were involved. Um, and of course, activists don't want to talk about this thing in the moment because they don't want to impugn the person who's now been killed by the police. But oftentimes people are involved in, in the drug economy. Um, and then other times people are not at all, but they may live in an area where that zone has been designated as one that's going to be policed uh, because of the 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 um you know the the myth or the reality of of crime in it right so i think we have to get back to um the underlying class dimensions of all this because if we leave central cities and we go out to small towns and and you know rural areas again people who are caught up in the the opioid epidemic right people who are, who are caught up in uh sex work right they're they're managed and and policed and imprisoned at higher rates than other folks who who live a pretty uh, straightforward, straight-laced life. So I think we definitely want to think about that. Um, and I think that has to be more, at least as far as of us who, who are on the left and who want to think about alternatives, we have to kind of keep bringing the conversation back to that. There's no changing or transforming police without also dealing with the underlying inequality, right? And I think, you know, again, we also have to reckon with the fact that um, show me a, a society, right? This is the issue. Show me a society, even a socialist uh, society, that completely does away with the place of force. This is something, again, yeah, somewhat yeah, yeah. taboo when we're in this kind of uh, situation right now where there's a lot of hyperbole being flung around. People are really concerned and, and deeply committed. But even if, if, even if we would imagine somehow that democratic socialism was to be achieved within the context of the United States, you still have to be prepared to defend that just society from the persons who don't want it to exist, right? It's always funny when I have these conversations with people about Cuba who get into, um, you know, this weird space because we've been, we've been living in this cradle, right, where we're able to kind of have our ideas and imagine what socialism can be, but not be in a position to have to actually defend it, um, where people really think that 
if you create a, a situation like Cuba, kind of post-revolutionary situation, you also have to allow for all ideas to be accepted and circulated. Um, and and that the, the idea that that could happen and that Cuba would have persisted as long as it has, right? This kind of an odd thing. I'm not justifying it, but I'm simply saying that, you know, all societies, all communities have to be defended from their alternative, right? I mean, this is sort of the thing that gets lost. And I also don't think that we can totally get to a place where force is no longer a part of, of politics, right? I mean, I think this is a another odd thing, you know, not really a concern for us to deal with right now and while we're trying to address the problem of, of over-policing, but I, I just don't see it, right? I mean, yeah, I, and yeah. I, don't think, I don't think that all, all uh, bad behavior in our society right now is purely a, a consequence of, of, you know, the limits and contradictions of capitalism. I think murder has always been a part of, of human, you know, uh, experience, uh, fights and conflicts. And, you know, I just don't really see us getting past that. So then if, if that's what we're saying, that this can't be completely gotten rid of, then what do we do? You know, I mean, how do you how do you ensure public safety right. in yeah. a place like so Chicago or New York or Los Angeles? Here's um, the second part of this question. Yeah, I'm right, glad yeah. you uh, sure. I'm glad that you approached it this way. And just to finish up, and I'll let uh, Ben jump in. Sure. You know, Lisa Bender, the president of this uh, Minneapolis City Council, responds somewhere later down the thread, or maybe just in her tweets. And here's the, here's the issue with this, right? So we're talking about dismantling it, uh, the police, and replacing it with something different, uh, categorically different, Pol- uh, p- peace officers, right? Something mm-hmm. we could get behind. But then she asks, right? Here's the limitations of that liberal anti-racist discourse that Ben and I have been talking about that you've written about, many others have been commenting mm-hmm. on. She says, if you are a comfortable white person asking to dismantle the police, I invite you to reflect. Are you willing to stick with it? Okay, fine stick with it right that's a problem with political movements like you know there's there isn't uh you know that kind of stamina <laughs> to, to keep things up past the the flashpoints but then she asks, will you be calling in three months calling the police in three months to ask about garage break-ins right. <laughs> right you see what i mean i mean that boy that shifted really quickly didn't it right all of a sudden we're talking about dismantling an institution right and and then suddenly we're checking our privilege when it comes to calling police. When someone legitimately breaks into your house or your property or something like that, and you need some kind of societal response in order to kind of, you know, like you said, like maintain the kind of system that that we live in, right? I mean, what if? I mean, that's an easy one, right? What if? What if somebody assaults you on the street? What about domestic violence? Right. What about, you know, other forms of victimization that, that our society is much more universally opposed to? I mean, that garage break-in is kind of a cheap throwaway line there. She mm-hmm. could have substituted anything else. And then it's going to take us right back to the point where we need policing in some way, shape, or form. And Ben, I know you've got a lot to say about this, so I'll, I'll leave that point. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think the response from uh, at least some of my friends and other folks would be that that you could still manage domestic violence, uh, mental health episodes, some of these other problems through other means, right? So with, you know, you said peace officers, uh, there's also the rebirth of a fantasy of, of like, you know, uh, community p- patrols and community-based uh, alternatives, even though that has a history that's very much uh, embroidered within the history of neoliberalization, right? That's how those ideas em- initially emerged, right? As part of a way of thinking about 
uh, almost outsourcing the responsibility back to to uh, communities. I mean, I totally believe in in scaling back, rolling back the carceral state, uh, demilitarization, um, the normalization of non-lethal, you know, uh, weapons when it comes to uh, policing, because in most incidents, most conflicts, even armed standoffs, right, there's ways to resolve that without necessarily taking someone's life. Um, I just think that we, we, we can achieve public safety and, and can do a lot more um, by getting rid of some of the inequality that exists, right? I mean, nobody's going to break into the garage to steal your bike if they've got one already, right? And they're content yeah. with the life that they have, right? I mean, unless so- it's Karen, you know, uh, who got angry at the last week's PTA meeting, so now she wants to, you know, uh, get back at you for something, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in that I, case, I a peace that- officer would be, uh, you know, uh, definitely capable of uh, resolving that kind of situation, you know, without right. guns and uh, armored personnel carriers. Right, right. So I think we can do it differently. I just I think that it's that there's limits to it, though, right? There's limits, especially if we if we are trying to, uh, you know, I think if you try to 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 redistribute wealth, right, they're going to be people who oppose that. What happens in that situation is something that we have to think about, like, you know, people so you can you can persuade some of them, um, you know, and then there's also I mean, having experiences this past week, you know, when the when the the uh, day-to-day expectations and norms and social order breaks down, which is what we saw here, uh, at least for, um, you know, about a 48 to 72 hour period, you know, there's gunshots all, all through the day, right. And night sirens going, um, people who are in need, who can't find anyone to help them. And then it also tipped off, um, you know, the kind of behavior we don't want to see really a breakdown of solidarity, in some neighborhoods, right, um, where, you know, people begin guarding their neighborhoods and harassing anyone who they suspected was not a part of that community. And so, you know, how do you, again, how do you create and maintain order, especially in major urban areas, right? I mean, I think that's where it becomes a difficult, a difficult sell. Um, I don't think the answer is policing, but, you know, can we talk more in the way of, of, um, you know, uh, redistribution and, you know, having a much more equal society. And again, abolishing the class relation ultimately. Yeah. And I mean, certainly, I mean, when I, I mean, okay. So I have to, I have to say my cynical reaction when I hear all that stuff about the Minneapolis city council is like, yeah, really? Are are you really going to do that? Right. Like, like, like what, what, what does that mean concretely? Right. Like um, I'm pretty sure nobody on the Minneapolis city council uh, is actually going to propose anything to like what replace police with like post-revolutionary workers, militias or something, right? That's probably not at the table. So like, you know, when they say dismantle, right? The police, right? That's, that's, I'm, I, I really have a lot of follow-up questions and, and this is, you know, important in a way that connects with, like, I think a couple threads, what you just said, right? Cause I think one thing that, um, that you know, those of us on the radical left really need to to push back against is is a tendency that that a lot of people have to um, you know to just sort of black box what we want, right? You know, to be like incredibly um, you know to have this incredible level of vagueness. Like I remember, like back in like 2017, when the Democratic Socialists of America uh, passed a lot of resolutions calling to abolish 
uh, different institutions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, police, prisons, etc. Uh, a lot of people would sort of use this like as almost like a cheat code, this phrase, like as we know it, right? You know, when, when, right. when they would explain it, right? It's like, oh, we don't, we want to totally get rid of police as we know them. Mm-hmm. And of course, I could nod along to that because, poli- you know, police as we know it is, is awful, right? But right. then like you haven't really told me anything yet, right? Like you've just sort of said the status quo is bad and we want to replace it with something that's not the status quo, and when you start to ask follow-up questions, it gets a lot more complicated, both because, as you indicate, right, that um, even in an advanced socialist society where there was no, like, we completely eliminated, like, street crime that's, like, fueled by poverty, mm-hmm. uh, it seems a little unrealistic to say that rape or domestic violence are going to be completely abolished in that society. Uh, but also because... If you say, oh, we want to replace, you know, policing with some sort of popular institution or something. Well, um, Trayvon Martin wasn't murdered by a policeman. He was murdered by 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 somebody in a self-organized community patrol. Right. Mm-hmm. Like right, same uh, Ahmaud Arbery. Ahmaud, yeah. You know yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah but, maybe this is why you don't see as many blacks who embrace anarchy anarchism even as a as a set of radical ideas right because usually when when there's uh yeah. popular um control it's not always a good, good thing right. right i mean you know it certainly wasn't the case during jim crow segregation right to have popular uh will imposed upon people so i think i think it's it's complicated man i mean maybe it's just cuz i'm getting old but i think that you know, having lived in a metropolitan area and having lived in a couple of different really big cities um, over the course of my life, I mean, we expect a certain level of civility. And usually most people will will engage and behave, you know, in, in those ways. But I mean, I don't think, again, I don't think we can get rid of, um, you know, some of these things like domestic violence and various kinds of predation. I just think that, you know, it's 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 uh, unrealistic and not helpful at this point to sort of think in those in those terms. I also think that the you know the, also like you said the whole black box idea. A lot of us tend to think about what we want in highly abstract terms and not based on the plane of struggles that are actually unfolding and what could actually be achieved. Right. This is what I was saying earlier about the creating popular uh, majorities. I guess that was before we actually started talking. Um, on air, but I think that you know we have to think in those terms. And if we if we stop and say that in order to get the things we want, we're going to have to have uh, legislative majorities in states, in cities, you know, at the municipal level, but perhaps even at the congressional level, that totally alters what's possible, right? I mean, we can't you can't approach it with an abolitionist language if you wanna you wanna win. And I'm not you know then then there's also the problem of compromising, right? So I'm not suggesting that we we, um, you know, go with the the uh, the city council's view, right? I mean, I think it's our our job and our task to try to mobilize as much power to compel them to do the things that that we want. But I think it has to take place within the context of what's what is like what's here. And right now, people are are excited about making some technocratic changes. They're also excited about the possibility of, of defunding, as we've already said. I think the danger, this is what I see as the, the potential danger, if we don't think tactically and don't think about, you know, like I said, building those, those majorities, 
what we could end up with is, is a, a mix of a few things, right? I think we can expect over the next year, we can expect to see, it's already in motion, a wave of diversification within corporate institutions, nonprofits, and uh, up to some level within government, right? Because of the, the elections and appointments that'll happen um, as a result of everything that's going on right at this moment. I think we'll probably see some of the technocratic reforms we've talked about, you know, and, and there's lag, right? So on the one hand, you've got people in Minneapolis and California and other places that are saying like defund these institutions, dissolve policing, right? And then I'm still seeing Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, which is part of the New York, New Orleans metro area, they're calling for body cameras, right? So I think depending on the, the geography of it, you know, which which states we're talking about, people are calling for things which, um, you know, those of us who live in cities would be like, oh, that's, you know, that's not going to work or we've already done that. So I think that the, it's going to be uneven. But the, the danger, I think, is that ultimately what we'll see, if we don't build a, the kinds of legislative majorities that are needed to pass serious, you know, uh, changes and reforms, we'll see much more of a push towards uh, this kind of like e-carceration or electronic incarceration, right? So more in the way of, of home detentions instead of prison terms, especially for nonviolent defenders. And they're already moving in that direction, right? But I think this could potentially accelerate that process. And then on the side of policing, much more in the way of, of uh, you know, sort of um, data mining, intelligence-led policing, and methods that will rely upon artificial intelligence, right? And algorithms that, at least in part, take the human problem, you know, the the the, the problem we're seeing on the streets right now, right? You the, know, the, the the quote idiot. bias problem, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, robots can't be biased. Robots can't have racial bias, right? No, so yeah, they're so like the purest the arbiters. We already have, we right? the, uh, it's like, it's like, you know, t- a Terminator, you know, I'm here exactly. to distribute justice, you know? Right. like. Right. Uh, yeah. No, it's, it's I mean, that'll be a, that'll, that'll be a great victory so. for, for justice when we, uh, the T-1000s from Terminator 2 are killing us all at an equal rate with no racial <laughs> right. you know, disparities. Right. Yeah. 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 One of my friends, uh, Donnell Walton, he's a, um, he's a physics uh, guy out on the West Coast. He said when he watched uh, the news coverage of the, um, the SpaceX launch, he was like, it reminded him, of, reminded him of Elysium, right? Where there's like the, the mm. rocket taking off. And then the next moment they switch back to like riding. <laughs> <laughs> In multiple yeah. cities at the same time, yeah. but uh, I mean, yeah. I think we're already in that. We're already in the yeah. in motion to to see some of these these less uh, invasive. Well, they're more invasive in some ways, but less brutal forms of policing. Right, where you're aggregating data, you're using data to set to solve crimes. You are probably breaking all sorts of uh, civil rights violations. Right, mm-hmm. you know that'll be the, that'll be where the plane of, of struggles will, will happen. But. Um, I think that this kind of, of moment with George Floyd is probably going to lead to that, right? A different kind of policing. I don't think if it's going it's to be as, as progressive or, or as it's not going to disappear in the ways that people want. But it'll be, you know, it'll present new problems to us, right? You know, new problems as far as, as, far as uh, the use of facial recognition and, you know, uh, network security cameras. They're already doing this stuff, right? So I think, I think it's just, it'll just be become much more widespread, right? So we'll see not just the handful of cities that can afford it, but others that begin adapting some of these technologies. 
Mm-hmm. Let's talk. I mean, the thing, the thing, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious how you're going to conceptualize this in your book, right? This is always like, you know, uh, first of all, when do you think it'll be out? Let's, I mean, obviously we're going to have you back on to talk about it. Just kind of get a sense of how far along you were. Well, you know, these, these academic books take like longer yeah. than they should, right? They're still, right, right. Um, so probably next year, next summer, mm-hmm. next fall, something like that. So, yeah. yeah. So, the, you, I mean, you'll have time hopefully to like maybe even put a, a, a forward or a preface or something. Yeah. A preface of some kind, maybe if things kind of. <laughs> change so yeah you you know you won't have to stake your your claim too far out in advance thank god because i mean that's that's a that's a tough thing to do i'm uh ben you're kind of doing that right now i'm thinking through that with, with in terms of your book like when do the liberal outrages kind of ever stop right and when when does the police violence and the reactions to those police violence ever stop you know when can you ever sort of put a pen in something and and, and assess it as a as a coherent totality right that's always an illusion right yeah um, yeah no, I mean, it's, but, but it's that, definitely, yeah, but that's just to say you're, you're definitely thinking about this, like how to contextualize this and how to think through it. And one of the things I've talked to, I've talked with this, uh, I won't name any names or private conversations. There'll, there'll, there'll be people that we'll likely have on the show in the coming weeks and months ahead to kind of assess this moment. But, you know, people are kind of like, well, what the fuck, man? What happened? You know, last month, two months ago, you know, we're even in the midst of COVID. We're talking about Bernie Sanders and all of the, right. all the politics that he represents. We're talking about, you know, things like the democratic road to socialism and this final kind of building our forces for a confrontation with capital, right. um, you know, it, through the institute, through it in and around and outside and inside and everywhere else, the institutions, right? Building party like formations, building our bases of power inside and outside society. Um, and, 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 you know, now you look around and we're right back to in, in some ways, you know, there's definitely been some progress, but we're right back to this kind of um more like, you know, dare I say, like amateurish uh, attitude about politics and political and social change that we saw around Occupy. Yeah, it's it's astonishing. And in some ways, it's, you know, I'm trying to be I'm trying to you can you maybe you can both tell I'm, I'm a little off brand here and I'm trying to be opt- I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to hit an optimistic note today. Um, I don't know if I'll, I'll be successful in the end, but I mean, kind of riff on that for us. I mean, I'm sure that's something that you ha- you've had to think about a lot while you're writing this book. Right. Yeah, I mean, so I'm usually really cynical or pessimistic about stuff. So I'm, I, uh, I mean, the, the blackout Tuesday thing, you know, uh, where you know you had a first people who are, who are creating the black squares as their photo instead, you know, still using a photo um, for their story, and then you've mm-hmm. got people who are saying that that was the wrong thing to do, right? So people are criticizing yeah. them for doing that, and then. Um, you know, and then later people are saying you should use the hashtag or you shouldn't use the Black Lives Matter hashtag. And so you're getting these really uh, arcane and, and just, you know, when you look across the way and you see what the ruling class is doing, it just seems, you know, really pathetic, right, in some ways. So that's frustrating and I'm irritated by it. Um, I think it's silly. But I also wonder, and I said this to some people last week and I'm, I'm still trying to, you know, think through it, but the way that we experience um, these events, you know, as intellectuals and as people who are like all in, right? We're reading constantly, you know, um, we're thinking through these things in a different way. I wonder if these, how these events look to, you know, teenagers, how they look to um, somebody who has been out of work for the last, you know, couple months and who's, you know, who may have been uh thinking about Sanders but not sure, you know, and maybe they didn't vote, maybe they voted for Biden, you know, and, and and now they're sort of sitting with that decision. 
Um, I wonder what it looks like to them. I wonder how we how should we think about this this moment, which is unprecedented, right? I mean, I don't think there's any moment we can think of this this scale of rioting, this scale of protests happening within the U.S. Um, you know, just the 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 march for George Floyd the other day was maybe sixty thousand people who turned out in one city. Uh, so I wonder how do we think about it as you know, one perspective-wise, what does it look like to different constituencies, different publics? Um, to what extent is this maybe the beginning of something for some people, right? In the same ways that we all had some, you know, I could probably point to some protests I was in as a high school student, which I would look at today as being narrow, unimportant, not really connected to um, broader issues. But for me, it was it was the first moment, you know, I, the example I'm thinking of is uh, we actually protested a school consolidation program, right? They were trying to integrate the schools in the parish where I grew up. And the plan was to build new schools that would, you know, take away all these little small uh, redundant schools in, in communities and create some larger, more efficient, you know, uh, better new buildings, new facilities. But they were going to put them all in white neighborhoods, right? So... The, the black students who were the majority of the school district were like, no way. So we started protesting. Um, and that was the beginning of something for me, right? It was the beginning of thinking about power. How do you not just participate, but how do you advance your interests within the context of, um, you know, a political fight, right? And so I think, you know, for some people, this might be a beginning for others, this might be a, a moment that crystallizes certain things. I mean, I think people were really pissed off about what Lori Lightfoot did. You know, the, the scenario I just mentioned where she sort of protects the downtown but then leaves neighborhoods to, to burn. So I think there's a lot going on here. And I just wonder, like, you know, there's the, there's the dumb social media world, which I try to stay away from as much as I can. Um, and what that does, right? I mean, just the behaviors on social media, right? It's sort of like uh, even on a regular, in regular time, when it's not a pandemic and it's not uh, nationwide protests, you know, people post certain kinds of things. They sort of select out what they want to share. A lot of it is about maintaining your status within whatever clicks are reflected within social media. You know, so people you know in real life, people you went to high school with, you want to argue with. There's all that sort of stuff going on. So I don't really know if it's the best place to look. I mean, I just wonder. I mean, I was walking down the street the other day and I, I was walking. I saw these little girls. This is going to sound like some crappy, uh, almost politician type bullshit. But I was walking down the street <laughs> and there were these little white girls who were like chalking out on the sidewalks, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was sappy. Right. And when I saw it, I'm thinking, you know, sure. what the hell? But on some level, I'm like, well. If that's their baseline, that they're starting from the sense that, you know, um, this country should, you know, and that's really what this is all about. This is really just militant racial liberalism is what we're talking about. It's, it's pitched in an aggressive way, in an assertive way, but it's essentially saying that everybody should have, you know, this, this society should be able to work for everybody regardless of race, color, creed, uh, and what have you. And I mean, I think that's, that's essentially it. Now, that's the problem for us because we're like, okay. Racial liberalism didn't work in the 1960s, and it's it's still not going to work now, right? It's really not going to work now. And if and if anything, it actually provides dynamism to neoliberalization as the process, right? It it allows it to seem fair and seem open and inclusive, 
and at the same time engage in massive dispossession and exploitation of people and raiding of public goods. So I think I think we have to kind of stay in the fight, right? You know, so I think some people are being politicized by this. It's tough to stay in that moment and in that space with them and and try to hear what people are thinking, you know, um, because I think it's narrow, right? I'll say that I, I don't think it does enough, but I know that I was in that same place at, at one point, right? That I, and, and some on some issues, I'm still in the same place, right? I mean, I'm sure there's some people who would say, you know, on, on other fronts, I'm not taking the positions that I should be taking. So I just think it's, it's the stuff of, of political life, right? To, to, um, to try to assess, you know, how people see their, themselves, how they see it, this moment, and um, and how do we push, you know, how do we push the critique, you know, in, in the midst of this moment without necessarily uh, alienating people completely from it, you know? Yeah. I, so, so you know, something where you're talking about, about uh, militant, you know, racial liberalism, I mean, I guess just on a really simple level, because I mean, I try to spend a lot of time thinking about, like, how to explain this stuff and argue for these things, even to people who, you know, even to people who might think of themselves as, as socialists, right? Like, like, a, um, you know, as, as we're all aware, uh, the New York city, uh, DSA recently, uh, canceled a, a, a talk, uh, that was scheduled, uh, by, by Adolf Reed, uh, cause, cause they're, uh, you know, framing it as, class reductionist and, you know, insensitive and, you know, the time everything's going on. Uh, but, but it's, it seems like the, the sort of critique, right? Like the kind of core explanation of, you know, what's wrong with that um, militant racial liberalism. One, one way to, to get at it, right. Is uh, of course, you know, if, if, uh, if all bias uh, by by police, you know, all racial bias by police were eliminated tomorrow. That would be, you know, very good, right? Like that, that would be a great, you know, stride in the right direction. Um, but presumably, black people would still be killed by police at a much higher rate than white people in that scenario because the black poverty rate is so much higher. Right. Um, and and I, I guess. Um, you know, I, I guess something that that feels you know that feels obvious to me, but but maybe we need to to do a better job of of you know of kind of you know explaining or or turning into slogans or something, right? Is is that we um, is that the only if you if you accept that the sort of predominant way that uh, that, that racial hierarchy manifests itself and all of these problems is economic, then, then you, then you need um, the only adequate solution to that, right. has to be, um, has to be economic at its core. And also um, if, if we want to build, um, you know, a majority coalition to, to, you know, deal effectively with any of these problems of police militarization and, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, uh, aggressive, violent policing in general. Uh, obviously, you know, you need the biggest possible coalition to to do that, right? And and one thing I find really striking, and maybe has something to do with the way that in the past activists have framed this in exclusively racial terms, is that this now allows people, like I'm thinking, for example, of the journalist like Mike Tracy, who you know is sort of a self, you know, thinks of himself as a big contrarian. And uh, and something that he's been doing a lot in the last week is the sort of weird gotcha 
is like he'll sort of like count the number of white faces in some protest crowd, right? And say, oh, this is all, you know, white people doing this, right? You know, which which is supposed to delegitimize it, which seems especially perverse because you think, well, hold on, right? Uh, if you actually want a successful movement, right, presumably um, interracial solidarity is 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 the very first thing that you want because because if you don't have that, right, then then by definition you're restricting yourself to the to the support or participation of a minority of society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely. That, I think I'm with you. I think I think I I see that as a sort of. Uh, bygone conclusion right of of politics of political life that you have to ally yourself with you know with other people um not as allies in the ways that that the woke folks use it but um to me i mean this is the most this is to me the simplest uh way of thinking about it right we wouldn't have had a a voting rights act if it was just for black people's self-assertion right um, I think that there's been a way in which, like all all sorts of other historical moments, um, that's been degraded and misrepresented by, by some some uh, you know uh, wannabe historians in this moment. But I think you know there's no way we can look at you know whether it's it's um, you know the the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, the you know the major civil rights acts of the the uh, 1960s. I mean those things were passed through. Uh, conventional politics, right? It wasn't just, you know, um, people speaking truth to power. It was also wrangling, you know, people who were on the fence. It was putting pressure on congresspersons to move in certain ways. And again, to this question of of how do you take force out of it, um, out of politics, or the fact that you can't take it out, we wouldn't have seen some integration in some of these places had it not been for federalization of the National Guard, the use of uh, federal marshals in different places. So I think, again, we have to be more savvy. And, you know, um, I'm not 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 you guys, but the, the people who are not as enlightened as us. Right. <laughs> um, we have to think in more complicated ways about the relationships. Right. Whether it's how do we build popular, you know, coalitions or alliances, but then also what the state can do and how it how. Even even the things that we might think of as being repugnant in this moment actually have been helpful and indispensable in other historical moments, right? So um I don't know, I just I I, I wish people would would study, you know, that's that's but been my, my regular line. And that's not elitist to say that. I mean, I knew people who I grew up around who were, you know, custodians and share former sharecroppers who would sit around and talk about political life as it was experienced in their, you know, immediate setting. And I think we have to do that, right? I think it's not just the, the um, you know, the ethereal settings of, of uh, social media, right? We really have to get into the, the heart of it, like what, you know, uh, what's at stake. And um, I thought, you know, just to kind of cycle back to what you said about, about Adolf and the, the, the whole cancel culture uh, phenomenon, um, you know, it's just a, it's absurd, right? I mean, to to say that Adolf is class reductionist is fucking you know it's insane, right? Because when you actually read his work, I mean, he's more so than the people who are criticizing him. He's actually taken you know whether it's his his work on um, Atlanta, you know, during the nineteen uh, 
70s and, and 80s, which he bore witness to as a person who was living and working within the mayoral administration at that time, or any, any, you know, any of his, much of his work, right? He's actually spending time talking about Black people in ways that are sophisticated, right? That don't just simply lop us all together, but actually pays attention to the particular interests that are animating Black political life at various moments, right? And I think, you know, it's, it's just an empty charge to call him um, class reductionist, right? I mean, you know, that he's not paying attention to, to race. He's actually paying attention to what racial liberalism has meant, how it's moved within, um, you know, Black political life, how it's retained a certain hegemony, right? And who's benefited from that? He's actually one of the people who's done that, you know, you know, the best in so many ways. But I just think it's, it's pitiful, right, that now we're in this moment where, you know, rather than have uh, a conversation or even take the time to offer a real cr- criticism that we just want to cancel, you know, those persons or individuals who we disagree with. Right. You know, so I just think it's, it's a pathetic moment that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, unfortunately, we don't have the time to get into that particular debate too much more. I mean, but, you know, your work obviously uh, gives us a lot of footholds to, to think through it um, in, a, in a more general way rather than a particularistic kind of um, inside baseball, you know, partisan DSA uh, politics sort of way. Um, you know, just to wrap it up, you know, people can check out previous appearances that you've made on DPS, but talking about, you know, the fact that, you know, racial categories cannot operate as coherent political constituencies mm-hmm. is is so important in this moment, obviously, from the Black Lives Matter side of things, right? That you mentioned time and time again, which is, I mean, I can't say this enough, all right? There are more Black identified people in the United States than people, to, the, the total population of Canada, mm-hmm. right? There are more Black identified people in the United States than the total population of Canada. Right. There are more Black identified people in America than the total population of Canada, right? Like keep saying that over to yourself over and over and over again. And think about the the, Cana- the Canadian polity. And think about the political divisions that exist there. Think about the class divisions that exist there. I mean, there are three, at least three major political parties. There are Greens, there's four, you know, other minor little, I mean, and, and think about how difficult it is to try to unite that polity under any kind of, you know, political program or whatever. And there's all kinds of, t- you know, tumultuous relationships that evolve therein. And why wouldn't, the, the so-called black community in the United States suffer from the same divisions. Um, it's, it's, it's really silly. It's really silly. I mean, I think, you know, to come back to, to do the thing that I said I wasn't going to do is that, you know, the, um, the, the protest against Adolf Reed's appearance in, well, it wasn't even an appearance. It was an online <laughs> event uh, originated from the, um, I believe it's, it's called the BIPOC, the, uh, essentially the the black socialists and people of color, people of color caucus and uh, afro socialist and people of color caucus in uh DSA and you know it's important to note that Adolf Reed came on this very show 3 years ago and we we debated the that um those identity caucuses the the appearance thereof and inside of DSA and we obviously took the side that that's a very very bad idea because it's, a, it's impossible to adequately represent the so-called political interests of a racial category because no such thing exists uh, or is possible. Um, and secondly, because it gives uh, a, a very small and unrepresentative minority of, of people inside of those categories the ability to take a, a kind of a bully pulpit position and articulate for the rest of people on, on their own on their behalf what what a black politics might look like or ought to look like. And it's important to note that. Not only is Adolf a black man, but a lot of people 
in uh, who were organizing that event are, you know, are classified in this society as black. Um, you know, so it's just it's worth noting. Give us a kind of a, a rallying cry around kind of how to conceptualize this moment with respect to your critical, critical insight that you've distilled for everybody um, that that racial categories just cannot possibly operate as political constituencies. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I mean, we're seeing it right. I think if you for anybody who's paying attention, you can see it quite clearly. Right. I mean, when when Lightfoot, you know, made the move to to, uh, you know, encircle downtown, that was clearly for her. Right. Uh, um, what she thought as necessary, but it was against the interests of the black and brown neighborhoods to the south and west of, of downtown. Right. So we saw that in the immediate sense. Um and I think, you know, even even beyond just the, the most overt examples like that, right, we've we've got different perspectives on how to address this stuff. Right. And I think that that gets lost, too, um, whenever, uh, you know, the the uh, the idea of a, a unified racial constituency is launched. Right. You know, um, when it comes to this 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 matter of policing you know, there are many black people who are not against police, right? I mean, this is, this is, this totally gets lost and it's not just now, right? I mean, one of my favorite scenes uh, from the old documentary, American Revolution 2, right? This is one of the documentaries filmed amidst the 68 DNC protests, but then they stay in town and they, they actually capture uh, some really good footage of both Black Panther organizing and also the, uh, the young patriots on the North side, right? Yeah, that's and, on YouTube. Uh, People should look 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 that up. Uh, when absolutely, man. But one of the best one of the best moments is when the Panthers are trying to organize in the pool hall, right? And the responses they get from black people who are there, like this is their leisure time. They don't want to hear about the police, right? They basically like we don't we don't really care about that. And it's interesting to watch the back and forth, right? There's the you know the the just or you know righteous position that the Panthers are taking that police are brutalizing black people but then there's the the lived experience of those persons who may have you know in some cases they actually have faced you know police abuse who are not thinking about it. it's not foregrounded in the same ways it's not necessarily a priority for them in the same ways and i think that's still true now right i mean it, it it's easy to lose sight of that given the again the hyperbolic rhetoric of the moment and who gets to control you know what black people are, are thinking or, or at least expose and reflect what black people are thinking um, I think the positions are all over the place, right? I mean, there is what 1.5 million police officers in the United States. In some cities, many of them are African Americans, right? And I'm not just saying, you know, because I know people get into this whole thing. Well, it's the role that they play. They're still black, right? So they they still experience the society in different ways, right? They're not just the police officer. And I think um, you're going to hear all sorts of different positions once you know once we get past this moment where you know, everybody is pro-Black Lives Matter, we'll see really a, a, a diverse array of solutions to what we're looking at, right? And it's not going to all be about abolition or, um, you know, scaling back the, the police state, right? I mean, that's not necessarily, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we, we have the, the, um, the support for that, right? And, and that need, that's something that activists need to be clear on as well. Like I said, there's a schism. There's some people who have a problem with racist policing and, and racist, you know, abuse of black people by police, but not necessarily with the institution itself. So I think there's a lot of other political work um, to be done uh, there. But yeah, we can't, you know, we got to fight this idea that somehow 
the black population is is unified and uh, I mean it just leads to bad conclusions right and most of the time when people say that is because they want to give voice to what they think um, the black body politic wants right and that that's always been the case and it was especially the case during Jim Crow segregation when black people were you know disenfranchised on mass but in this moment where everybody has a chance to say what they think about things all the time, right? And in so, and in so many different venues, um, you just can't hold on to that. The other, the other comparison, I think, I think uh, Ture made that, Ture Reed made that initial comparison to Canada. Um, black population in the U.S. is also larger than the entire population of Australia, right? And I think maybe three times the size of Greece's population. If you think about the debates people on the left were having about Greece, over the, but they don't have comparable debates about, about blacks in the United States, right? Even though the populations, I think, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 44 to 46 million, right? This is, we got to take it seriously, right? And, and again, to kind of go back to the, the cancel, you know, uh, culture, I think Adolf's work, you know, for a long time was, was in, in political science was one of the, the, uh, the guiding lights when it came to, to looking at the actual interests you know, actually existing interests within the black population. Um, you know, so yeah, I think we got to do more of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and like, it's, it's particularly galling, you know, in, in the case of, uh, you know, of the cancel lecture, because, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to shock anybody. Uh, when, when I say, you know, I've, I've, I've met a lot of members of New York city DSA and, um, you know, the vast majority of them were white. Uh, that's, you know, I, I don't think I'm breaking any new ground there and, and, and right. pointing that out. Right. Which, but like, that's relevant because what we're mostly talking about are white DSA members in their minds, like taking direction from people who have anointed themselves as the voice of, um, of black socialists mm-hmm. in order to cancel an appearance by a black socialist that they don't like. Right. You know, which like by itself should tell you that there there's no uniformity here. And, and really it's like kind of a like bizarre and racist assumption that there's this like black hive mind, you know, that's going to tell you, right. you know, what it's um, you know, what, what its views are, right. Like, like the obvious, you know, the obvious response. And I mean, like really just to sort of put this in normie kind of like even conventionally liberal terms is just like, okay, so like, why don't you just have this event? And then like the week after that, the uh, you know DSA can like host some other black socialist who has a different perspective, and the week after that they can host somebody else, right? Like, and then mm-hmm. you know, and then like people can think about it and they can make up their minds, right? Yeah. And this really comes down to people not knowing their history, because like you know, if you've read your work, you know, if anybody's read your work, Cedric, and they should, particularly your book on from revolutionaries to race leaders. I know people don't like to read these days; they just like to sc- uh, sc- uh, you know uh, skim headlines. There's a headline for you, baby. From revolutionaries to race leaders, right? There's a trajectory <laughs> that you're trying to trace in this way. And like, and, and, and of course, you mentioned like, I mean, the most egregious period of, of this was in many ways like during the the depths of segregation and Jim Crow in the United States because black people didn't have a voice as we now understand a voice, particularly as you mentioned, rightly so. Twitter, anybody can pull out their phone who's got one and tweet away and there's your voice, right? People were legitimately talk about silencing people. The black population in America were were legitimately silenced in those in those moments, and so these race leaders crop up as you know in these kind of representative sorts of ways. But so anyway, it's just I think it's an extension of people. You're right, like not knowing their history, um, right. 
it, this is not the this is not our first rodeo with this stuff. It's it's evolved. It's changed. I'm not. It's not to say there's some direct line you can draw from any one moment to this one, but but yeah, uh, the the structure of this thing really does seem to uh, replicate itself, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think you know um, there are quite a few organizations on the left that have relied on this this kind of strategy, right? Of pushing for a strong anti-racist position because the idea is that it'll help them, the idea has always been that it'll help them diversify, right? That if they take the strong anti-racist stance, then black people will be compelled to join them, right? And I don't think that's that's ever really been the case, right? I mean, which is why these organizations remain largely white. Um, I think there's also something maybe more insidious underneath it all, right? I think some of it is the difficulty with mounting a, a counter to somebody like Adolf, right? Um, or even in the case of, I don't know if you all followed the whole uh, situation with Adam Shatella, right? He was a, uh, he's a, he was a grad student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but he published a really good critique of the ideas of Black Lives Matter, like looking at the, the founders and some of the things they had written. And uh, it created a bit of a firestorm. It was published by uh, journal Ethnic and Racial Studies. And, you know, people call for it. It starts on Twitter, right? They begin calling for uh, one. I think the opening line might have been like, you know, uh, posted by, you know, another academic was like, are we going to have a conversation about uh, white men writing about the Black Lives Matter movement when they don't know anything about it, right? And, you know, there was a, for a while, there was a, a call to, to, you know, to retract his, his article, right? And I thought it was, it was, you know, insane in some ways. Um, and I'm not saying that the old peer review process was great, right? It's always been fraud and, you know, it's always been fraudulent in some ways. And, and it's always been uh, a way that people can um, promote their own with the, the, uh, appearance of meritocracy, right? Because people know who's typically who's work they're reading, you know, even decades ago before, um, you know, the, the availability of the internet and search engines. But I think um, in this case, I mean, the idea that somehow an academic article that had been vetted uh, through the peer review process should be recalled, not because it was factually incorrect. They never really showed any factual uh, inaccuracies. It was more about who he was. Um, and I just, it was just an odd moment, right? I mean, having, having been around long enough, um, it, it really was a low point in my mind because it really didn't have anything to do with who he was either, right? The fact that he was a white guy. Had he been a woke white guy who wrote the article and took the same position that they wanted, they would have celebrated it and circulated on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else. But it's because he was taking aim at some of the ideas that they held near and dear. And I think it's just, it's, it's more than unfortunate, right? It's actually, it shows you how toxic even, you know, what we thought were these pristine academic circles, again, which had their own problems, have become where now cancel culture is a part of that, that uh, you know, milieu, right? Where you can't, you know, you can't tread in an area where you haven't been sanctioned or ordained to speak on, right? And, and I mean, I just think, as a black academic, that's a dangerous place to, to go, right? And we've, we've fought the opposite battle in earlier periods. Why would we then turn it around? I mean, if anything, write a criticism of the article. I've read tons of articles that are peer-reviewed that I don't agree with. I just simply respond to them in my own work, right? That's what we typically do. You don't call for 
the article. To, I've never in, 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 in like almost uh, a quarter of a century of being an academic, right? I've never actually thought that somebody, even the worst article, shouldn't have been published. But the moment we're in now, right, is that if you don't like a lecture, you cancel it. If you don't like an article that's published, you cancel it, right? You, you start some online campaign. I just, I think it just shows, again, the poisoning of the well. And, um, and we got to fight against this sort of stuff. So, yeah. And the worst aspect of it, if there is a worst aspect, is that, is that uh, we don't learn and grow from it, do we? Not at because all. Because you keep waiting for the other foot. When there's a cancellation or a call, like you, you I love that word, a conversation, right? You mentioned that the, the gentleman who started this, uh, uh, this outrage about uh, this piece that ended up in this academic journal uh, right. called for a conversation. Right. Right. That's one of those, uh, you know, double speaks where like we got to we got to talk shit about this enough to the point where there's an outrage and, and then uh, people uh, withdraw it or uh, cancel it for some reason uh, for fear of their own uh, careers or the, the you know, reputation of their outlet or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. And then you wait for the other. Fine. So they cancel it. They don't like it. Whatever. Let, let's just say that that's something that's OK. And it's not for all the reasons that you mentioned. But you want at that point. Right. For you wait for the other foot to drop which is the real substantive critique. And it rarely ever comes. I mean, really, it almost never does. And I, and I you know, I, I just to be, let's, I want to end this on a fair, a fair and balanced note is our uh, adversaries on Fox News used to say. They've since given that up. At least they're honest. Uh, <laughs> a fair and balanced note, which is, you know, I, I, I have on multiple occasions invited um members of the so-called uh, Afro-Socialist and People of Color Caucus and, and DSA to come on the show to talk to me about these ideas because I want to know what they think. Because if you read their statements, you get very little. I mean, to put it charitably, charitably, you get very, very little in terms of a substantive pushback as to why it is that they think this stuff is is toxic. Aside from just a couple sort of um, throwaway lines about this is a bad way, this is a bad look. How are we supposed to change the racial you know, makeup of our organization this way? Dot, dot, dot. We're left to fill in the blanks about if any of that's justifiable or what their argument might exactly be. And so here we are three years later struggling from the same kind of, um, uh, you know, discursive deficit, to put it lightly, that we were facing in, in 2017. Um, and Ben, I know this is your this is your wheelhouse, so I'll let you go out. I'll let you go out on this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, God, you know, like for being a, a perfectly innocent word that, uh, conversation I think has been kind of ruined. Uh, like I like, because both you get bullshit like this. And also of course there's the, um, you know, there's the ever present liberal, uh, thing about difficult conversations, um, on the, uh, Michael Brooks, uh, from Tuesday, you know, uh, on the show, he had a good line where he, you know, he was like, trying to imagine this version of like the freedom struggle in South Africa. So he does his uh, Nelson Mandela impression, but he's just calling for having difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, like it, it, it seems, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've seen other, other instances of this uh, among, among academics, you know, the uh, yeah, Rebecca uh, Tuvel uh, paper and right. Hypatia from, right. from a few years ago, uh, being you know being an obvious example and, and it's such a bizarre like perversion of like what you would think that um, you know what you'd think that like academics of all people would do right like you know like if, if you're if, if your entire thing right you know if you're like a philosophy professor like so like the entire thing you do 
right? Is like make arguments and respond to things, right? Then and and you're literally uh, giving that up, right? Like it's that's 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 um, you know that's so so insane and absurd, right? You know, and like as you say, right? Like with the um, with the statement you're talking about about Adolf Reed, uh, like they're they're making some sort of broad brush claims, right? But to like actually see if any of this were true, you'd need like a really long form explanation mm-hmm. that would amount to, I mean, obviously it's a non-academic context, but it's the same principle, right? What that long form explanation would amount to uh, is, is a article <laughs> responding to the articles that he's written about right. this, right? You know, you would just, you would just engage with the ideas uh, instead of, instead of saying we shouldn't have the talk or it's only permissible to have the talk if it's a debate, which when you say it like three hours before it's supposed to happen with no proposed debater, right, is just a is just a cute way of saying we shouldn't have the talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I think that's uh, I, I think that's that's particularly um, ab- absurd and 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 insidious. Uh, and and I would think, you know, if you want to grow. Uh, the organization or, you know, maybe even well, you want to grow the organization among some constituents that might not think the organization is paying enough attention to your, you know, issues. Right. Um, having a vibrant internal culture where you have lots of different visiting speakers who, who are, um, you know, who are talking about those issues seems, you know, I, I would, I would think would, would be the way to go. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how much I added to that, but, you know, but if, if you wanted to, say anything about that, Cedric, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, happily give you the last word. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, the, the word let's have, we need to have a conversation, difficult conversations. These things have all become their own set of problems, right? That they're not, it doesn't necessarily spur the kind of, of discussions we need to have, which are, which may be heated, right? They may be, um, they may be uh, hurt feelings, possibly, but or, or or we may just find out that we're wrong, right? That's the that's the that's, I think that's what some people are afraid of, right? It's like right having enough of a conversation or, or learning a different perspective to the point where we have to reassess what you've held near and dear. Um, but like I said before, I don't I don't I just don't think this this sort of renewed uh, focus on on anti racism as the hook, right? That this will be the thing that will bring Blacks into the door, right? I mean, we saw, you know, and we even saw this in the, the waning days of the the, uh, the Sanders campaign. I mean, I was approached by some colleagues of mine who um, signed on to a letter of Black academics, basically a, approaching Sanders about wanting to have a conversation, right? <laughs> to talk about the... The, um, you know, how to reach black voters, I guess, was the issue. And this letter came out. This was after Iowa. Right. It wasn't like last year, which would have been the time to have it. It was like in the run up to the South Carolina primary. So that that in and of itself made me reluctant to even consider it. I don't even think I even responded to the, the request, let alone sign on to this this uh, this letter. But I just thought the again the the very logic of it was flawed, right? It's the it's the idea that somehow one that the people who are the signatories have some insider knowledge about black people and can speak the voice 
uh, and whispering Sanders' ear, right? The problem with the race whisperers. Um, and then on the flip side, that if Sanders takes the position, a staunch anti-racist position, right, uh, in the terms that they said, right, not, not whatever, whatever position he's taking now or at that time wasn't adequate, right, he needs to do more, that if he did that, then somehow it would have an impact on the Black electorate multiple forms of, of either naivete or bad faith operating at the in, in, on both sides, right? The idea that they're speaking the voice, but on the flip side, that the anti-racist position is what Black people want to hear. Um, twice now, and it hurt us to watch it, right? In, in 2016 and again this year, uh, Sanders lost in South Carolina. He lost among Black voters. And, and pe- the people who won are hardly fucking anti-racist. I mean, they're, they're not people who, you know, maybe they may be friends of the Negro in the old sense of it, uh, both Clinton and, and Biden. But when you look at the, the damage they've wrought when it comes to either, uh, you know, the role. I mean, Biden literally uh, just said that the solution <laughs> is to have the police shoot you in the leg instead of the heart. Right. I mean, it's like all sorts of problems, though, right? I mean, real problems they created in the 1990s. Um the kind of the the new democratic model, right? Um, that had real impacts on on black people across the country. None of that was able to up in their support. So there must be something else operating. And I think you know we went over this in the conversation with uh, with Michael Brooks and and, and Willie Leggett, you know, and, and Adolph. You know, there were other things happening right on the ground in South Carolina that you can't surmount, uh, or Sanders couldn't surmount it, right? I mean, he couldn't get past the the, play, the powerful place of Clyburn and other black surrogates, you know, and the ways in which those those are not election presences. They don't just show up during, a, during an election cycle, but they're always around and they're always a trusted source. And they do have real um, patronage streams and, you know, deliverables they're able to give to um, blacks in South Carolina that mattered when they said, you know what, we should go with Biden, right? It also mattered that, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're in a moment where, um, you know, a Trump re-election is a live option, right? And I think, uh, I think for for many people, it was like we're going to vote defensively, we're going to vote pragmatically, and they they decide to support Biden. So again, the, the flaw, right, both within the letter that was circulated, was that any racism is the key, you know. And if you just only if you only do that, right, if you only talk more about um, race, then you'll, you know, you'll do well. And what's, what's sad about it also, right, is that the same forces were basically using this, the, the very same talking points of the establishment, you know, Democrats, as well as the corporate, you know, chattering class, right? I mean, the same points that we heard on MSNBC and from every, you know, uh, centrist, uh, center-right Democrat was that Sanders couldn't win among black voters, right? And then we heard all this other nonsense after the election about the wisdom of Southern blacks and, you know, all this other stuff that was pushed. Why would people on the left go along with that? Like, why would they support and and adopt the talking points? You know, that if, you know, I think, um, you know, it's just, it makes no sense, right? I mean, again, Clinton didn't win because she was anti-racist, right? You know, and neither did Biden. Right. So I, I just think I, I just think it's misguided. And, and it's a shame that we we saw a replay of it. Um, you know, last time it was reparations would be the, the litmus test. Right. If only Sanders adopted reparations, then black people would flock to his side. 
Um, and and what's, what's, what's sad about that, maybe this is an optimistic point to end on, I supported Sanders, right, both times because he appealed to um, the broadest possible sense of what Americans need, what America can be, right? And he was building a, the, the coalition. He was building the support. And I think, we, you know, we've said that already in a few places uh, that uh, he won the ideological battle when it came to, you know, Medicare for all, right? That many Americans, the majority of Americans support it. And I think on a lot of other issues, right? You know, sort of full f- and free funding of higher education, or, you know, tuition-free higher ed, those kinds of issues have gained momentum. And I think he did that without pandering. Right. He did it without pandering to black people in ways that Biden does. Um, and I, I actually I appreciated that as a black person. I actually thought that I don't want somebody like Biden who's, you know, saying stupid shit on uh, the breakfast club. Like, you know, you, if you if you don't vote, you know, if you have to think about whether or not you can vote for me, you ain't black. Right. I mean, that's insulting. I mean, that is totally insulting. And I think Sanders was a different kind of candidate. I think that's why we all loved him and was, was supportive of him, because he didn't really engage in that kind of, of um, you know, race pandering that we've seen in the past. And, and he was able to secure the support of, of many Black people. I'll leave, I'll leave you all with an optimistic, uh, on an optimistic note. Um, he had a rally here in Chicago over in, in, um, in Grant Park, and it was, it was magnificent, right? There were like thousands of people out diverse crowd. Um, Stacey Davis Gates, who's like the VP of the Chicago Teachers Union, spoke. All sorts of other people got up there. And, um, you know, yeah, it was a majority white crowd. This is a majority white country, right? So it was a majority white crowd, but they were um, Black people, brown people in the audience. And what was amazing is right after that, so I'm, I'm of course, like intoxicated by it, right? Because it was a huge rally. At that point, the pandemic didn't seem like it was going to hit us in the way that it did. Um, and it was a few weeks before the shelter in place. And so there was a sense of possibility. It was before South Carolina. There was a sense of possibility, right? And then all of a sudden, right, all of that just vanishes because the way it was described on the news immediately was that, you know, Sanders, uh, you know, had a huge turnout, you know, but there weren't a whole lot of black people. <laughs> so, so again, why, why are we on the left aiding and abetting that kind of position? When, when we look at on the ground, there are black people who are supporting Sanders because of the program, which is what he should have been doing, you know, all the way to the very end, instead of trying to, you know, make some, some gestures towards, you know, the, the race whispers. I just think it was an unfortunate turn, but, um, but yeah, you know, he built, he, he sort of built, I think a foundation that we can continue to work in and, and build from. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, to, just to end on, a, on an equally optimistic note, you know, um, people, we, we've shared stories like this. I've, I've shared stories as you all have over the past week about like, what the fuck happened? You know, where not only because of COVID, not only because of, you know, that, but, but now because of this, it's like the rhetoric had just shifted overnight, but we just have to remind ourselves, right? Like uh, what, what has been, uh, accomplished in the past can very easily be um, called for called forth uh, again in the future, right? Mm-hmm. So when we, if if nothing else, we have a proof of concept, right? That this that this mass, like you know, tens of millions backed movement, the Sanders movement, was viable before in a very real, palpable sort of way. There's no doubt that we can we can revivify that moment, um, maybe even on a stronger foundation coming out of this crisis at some point. But uh, yeah, I mean, your work, Cedric, is. Uh, 
absolutely essential. I know people who are still listening, um, listeners of DPS, uh, agree with me. So uh, looking forward to your book. And um, thanks for providing a little bit of clarity in this moment where I think a lot of us uh, feel cloudy and confused. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me.